When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is Unshaken. I've got a cold that I've been fighting all week, so please forgive me for the sound of my voice. I'll try to keep the, any coughing or sniffling to myself. I am actually grateful that I am not feeling very well because it, it pushes me to rely on strength above my own. Uh, and more than that, it adds about an octave to my voice uh, in the downward direction. And there's something about that gravelly bass that seems to add some some gravitas uh, to whatever topic you might be discussing. Yeah, I noticed that back in the day when I taught seminary. Usually once a semester I'd get sick, yeah, but not enough that I had to miss. But I'd go and, and, uh, and the students just seemed to be hanging on every word, no matter what we were talking about. It was the combination of Boyd K. Packer and Spencer W. Kimball uh, voice, and, and it seemed to lend something. Now, I'm not sure if that's a total waste for this week's material because it does not need any added gravity. Then again, this might be the perfect week for it because it, though it doesn't need it, it definitely deserves it. I don't know of better chapters in any of the standard works to be able to invite the Holy Ghost, deepen our testimony of the Savior, and come to understand what He did for us. Uh, today we get to cover uh, Isaiah chapter 50 through 57. And these are masterpieces of Scripture. Uh, Isaiah wrote incredible poetry all throughout, but he made some, some masterpieces in this week's material that, that need to be life-changing for each of us. Uh, I've loved the, the comments that I've been able to read that you are enjoying Hebrew poetry and becoming experts in spotting uh, parallels, uh, synonymous parallelism. Uh, kudos to you. I've been amazed at how much you've been uh, loving and understanding Isaiah in ways that you say you haven't before. And that thrills me to no end. Because if you are loving Isaiah, that means you're loving the Lord. And you are glorying, if you're glorying in Isaiah, then you're glorying in the things that he gloried in. And for that list, go back and read 2 Nephi chapter 11. Uh, that's why Isaiah was quoted so much by Nephi, because Isaiah gloried in the things that Nephi gloried in, chief among them glorying in his Jesus. And I glory in him as well. And today we'll get to, get to sense that. We'll get to feel that through Isaiah. It, what's interesting about these chapters today, and like I said, we'll be covering from 50 to 57. It's a short uh, number of chapters. Uh, and, and so perhaps you'll get lucky and we'll have a shorter, a shorter lesson this week. But it's, it, what's interesting about it, in, I, in the Book of Mormon, there is this Isaiah thread that runs throughout the text. And remember, the first family was originally scattered from Israel. And so they are feeling what it feels like to be a branch cut off and, and scattered, replanted somewhere else. And so no wonder Nephi quotes Isaiah so much because it's speaking to his circumstance. And knowing that we're not cut off forever... That as there has been a scattering, there will be a gathering, and that's us, and it's going to happen in the last days. And so Isaiah's layer cake 
Nephi is living in one of those layers, but he is looking forward to the latter days when another layer, the crowning layer, will come. And all that's made, all that went wrong in life will be made right again through the atonement of Christ, through the restoration of his gospel, through the sending forth of his servants to be able to gather his people back home. That's the big story of the book of Isaiah. And no wonder Nephi spends so much time describing it. Historically, in chapter tw- uh, 2 Nephi 12 through 24, that's the, these historical chapters of early Isaiah 2 through 14. But even more so, what we studied last week and what we'll study this week is a prime real estate, as far as Isaiah is concerned, uh, through the viewpoint of the writers of the Book of Mormon. Let me explain what I mean by that. It, there seems to be a relay race going on, and the book, the Isaiah scroll is their baton. Because what ends up happening, and this is kind of mind-blowing, at the end of 1 Nephi, Nephi teaches Isaiah 48 and 49, which we studied last week. Then, a generation later, after the family splits apart, he passes that baton to his little brother Jacob and says, this rising generation needs a refresher course on what I taught previously. So will you go and pick up where I left off? And he assigns Jacob a couple of verses from Isaiah 49 to be able to give his people hope. Well, you can't, once you start Isaiah, you can't just do two verses. Are you kidding me, Nephi? And so what Jacob does is after teaching and explaining uh, Isaiah 49, 22 and 23, he then teaches Isaiah 50 and 51 and the very beginning of Isaiah 52. And that's Jacob's leg of the relay race. Well, fast forward a few hundred years, and it's Abinadi's turn. And at, at the uh, compulsion of the priests of Noah, he's asked to explain some things about Isaiah. And what chapter do, do they happen to point him to? Isaiah 52. So the same chapter where Jacob left off, Abinadi is going to pick up. And Abinadi teaches and explains what, uh, the verses that, the, that he was assigned by the priests of Noah. But more importantly, he teaches all of Isaiah 53 which we'll cover today. And it is the most messianic of any messianic prophecies you could ask for. Well, that's Abinadi's leg of the relay. And the next one to pick up the baton and run with it is Jesus Christ himself, when he appears to the Nephites in 3rd Nephi. And after these these incredible days of ministering and blessing and healing, he has a, a, a day of teaching. And the focal point there is Isaiah. Yes, he quotes Malachi and, and a lot of other scriptures too. Jesus knew them all. But he spends an incredible amount of time focusing on the words of Isaiah. And where does he pick up? He focuses on Isaiah 52, the same passage that Abinadi did. Uh, But then he teaches Isaiah 54, uh, which we'll see today uh, is so relevant to what he would accomplish, uh, not only in his layer of the layer cake, but in the last days. So think about this. From Nephi to Jacob to Abinadi to Jesus, we see Isaiah 49 and 50, and 51, and 52, and 53, and 54. There's this Isaiah thread that goes throughout the Book of Mormon with writer after writer over the course of oh, 600 years. But, but the relay, it, it doesn't miss a beat. And it goes through these all-important chapters that we studied last week and that we'll study this week because they are a message to us in the last days, just as they were a message to the people that that Nephi and, and Jacob and Abinadi and Jesus originally taught them to. In fact, the way Nephi does it at the end of 1 Nephi, this is millennium. This is uh, the second coming of Christ. This is the, the binding of Satan. This is the last days. And I'm like, you got that out of Isaiah 49? Wow. 
Now, when it gets to, to Abinadi, it is, do you want to understand how Christ performed the atonement? What made him both willing and able to perform it? We'll go back to Isaiah 53. And again, wow, you got that out of that incredible chapter. And then to Jesus, you want to see how it all comes together at the final day? This final dispensation, will all things are brought together in me? Well, let me explain Isaiah 54 to you. And again, I think you got all that out of Isaiah 54. To see what the Book of Mormon writers got out of what we are studying, I, I can only pray that we will get a fraction of what they experienced but with their help that we'll be able to see what Isaiah was pointing us toward. Because we're living in these last days. And based on what Isaiah gives us by way of preview, you want to talk about a a marvelous work and a wonder? You want to talk about something that is jaw-droppingly beautiful and that we get to be a part of? This is the gathering of scattered Israel on both sides of the veil. And we will see that prophesied in what we study this week, just as we are seeing it fulfilled in the way that we serve every week. And so I pray that the Spirit will help motivate us to put into practice the things that we learn and the things that we feel. Uh, And again, my hat's off to you for spending this amount of time feasting upon the words of Isaiah. Jesus told us that we should. He commanded us that we must. And I hope that you're sensing that this is a commandment for our benefit. Uh, and, and, and that it is benefiting us. But let's dive in. Isaiah chapter 50, uh, right on the heels of 49. In fact, let's go back just a, a couple of verses. In Isaiah 49, 14, do you remember the question? Throughout these, these chapters of reassurance and, and reconfirming the promise, Zion kind of interjects and says, well, I, I'm not so sure. Have you really been there for us all the time? That's what he says in Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And throughout the rest of the chapter that we studied last week, the Lord is talking about mothers forgetting their nursing infants. That's impossible. About God forgetting us. Impossible. I have you graven upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I'm in the same close quarters. I have not forgotten you. I have not forsaken you. Who hath begotten me these, all these children that will be bursting your home at the seams? I will send kings and queens to be your nursing fathers and nursing mothers. I will pick you, scoop you up in my arms and put, you, put your daughters, that's your sons, put your daughters on my shoulders and carry them home with songs of, of joy and rejoicing. That was the promise of Isaiah 49. And it continues on in the promises of Isaiah 50. No wonder Jacob couldn't just stop with the chapter assigned him. Uh, Nephi, you can't stop at 49. You've got to keep going to 50 and 51 and into 52. Okay, forgive me, older brother. Well, how does it begin? Verse 1, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Now, Isaiah is picking up right where he left off in 49. If you felt forsaken and forgotten, I'm here to reassure you that you have not been. The way he puts it here is fascinating. Where's the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? I would put that in quotation marks. Oh, the the mother that I divorced, quote unquote, 
I did not divorce your mother. So there's no reason for you to feel that you are being abandoned. This idea of selling you to creditors, like I'm in debt, and I'm going to be thrown in debtor's prison, and that my wife and children are going to be sold off into captivity, into slavery, to be, so that I can pay back the debts that I owe? I'm the God of Israel. I don't owe anyone a thing. And so I have not sold you into, into slavery. I have not divorced your mother. Show me the papers. Show me the divorce papers. If you feel that forsaken, that forgotten, show me that I've abandoned you. And as he says at the end of that verse, it's you that's abandoned me. Debtor's prison, you do owe a debt to justice, but it's because of your own wrongdoing. You have sold yourselves into captivity to the Babylonians, that's coming, into the scattering by the Assyrians, that's already occurred. We're doing this to ourselves, so don't blame God for this when he's distant. In verse 2, he says, Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Again, he's rhyming here. He rhymed the idea of being divorced and being abandoned in the previous verse. And here, it's these interesting questions. Wherefore means why. Okay, Why, when I came, was there no man? In other words, when I came to you, why wasn't anyone there waiting for me? And then to rhyme the idea, why was it that when I called, nobody picked up the phone? I don't know about you, but it can be really frustrating when you call someone and they just won't answer. And it's, I I know you're there. I know you got your phone on you. Uh, But to feel like that in prayer, that I'm calling God and he's not answering me, well, reverse the roles here. And it's God on the line that is feeling forgotten and forsaken. Remember, you sold yourselves. I didn't sell you. If anything, you sold me uh, and replaced me with these false gods that we met last week. But to understand how the Lord is feeling here, again, turn the tables, reverse the roles, and if you're feeling forgotten and forsaken, Israel, believe me, I know exactly how you feel. Though mine is a more legitimate sentiment, As you have turned your back on me and followed false gods and worldly ways, I keep calling. By my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. I send my servants and you reject them, which means you reject me. In fact, when I was a young father, my favorite time of day was coming home from work. I loved work. I got to teach the gospel. It was the best. But to come home to my little kids... And they were small enough that they were really, really excited for Daddy to come home. It's the glory. It's, it, to me, it's still my favorite primary song. I'm so glad when Daddy comes home. It's a, it's a spiritual gem. Uh, but they knew what time I usually got home. And we had this window in the living room that faced the driveway. And there was the couch right underneath the window. And my favorite thing was driving up the driveway and seeing two little faces. My oldest, my oldest two. A uh, little blonde, uh, blonde sitting there on the couch, looking out the window, so excited for Daddy to come home. And I'd come in, and they'd come rushing, and usually one would, would they'd each sit on a foot and grab that leg, and then I would tromp around the house with them giggling, uh, and then we just, we'd have a fun afternoon, evening together. I, I miss those days. 
if my 21-year-old daughter and my 20-year-old son sat on my feet, I don't think I'd be able to lift either one off the ground. Yes, we'd be giggling still, but for different reasons. No, that day has come and gone. And now, uh, nobody sings, I'm so glad when daddy comes home, when I get home from, uh, from teaching. Often nobody's there, they're off doing their own thing. And if they are waiting for me, uh, looking out the window for dad to drive up, it's usually because they need some money. <laughs> so it's not quite the same as it was before. And as a result, I can feel in the smallest way a little of what the Lord is feeling here. Why is it that when I come home, none of you care anymore? Why is it when I call, nobody picks up the line? You see the caller ID, it's like, oh, it's dad? Oh, it's probably going to be a long conversation. You know how long-winded he is. Uh, he's probably going to try to teach me something because, well, a teacher's going to teach. Uh, I've, I've just got other things to do, dad, and I just don't have time. I pray that we don't make the Lord feel that. And I pray that when he, when he calls, we answer. And when he comes, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's the question that this is hinting at. When the Lord comes, I want there to be faith. And I want to be holding on to it myself. He goes on in the end of verse 2 and on into verse 3. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Is that why you're not there when I come? Is that why you don't answer when I call? Because you don't think I'm here for you? They don't think that I can redeem you? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Think back to the plagues of Egypt. Think of the conquest of the promised land. Think of the Old Testament we've been studying all year. Is my hand shortened? Are you kidding? Often, over and over, he said, my hand is stretched out still. And stretched out, yeah all the way down to your lowly level. All the way, my, my arms can stretch wide as eternity, to borrow the language of Enoch. My, my redeeming reach is infinite. And so please don't think that my hand is shortened. I told you about my two oldest children, my, young, my youngest when she was little. She loves the minions, uh, that, those movies, and... And she loves dinosaurs, as I did when I was her age. And so we compare notes about dinosaurs all the time. Uh, but I, she, it's funny, I love giving her hugs. She's just a great hugger, that when she wants to be, that is. But there are times where I want to give her a big hug and I'll wrap my arms all around her. And she'll just stick her, her hands out and just kind of like pat my sides. And I'm like, what kind of hug is that? Well, we answered the question. We called them minion hugs or T-Rex hugs. Because minions and T-Rexes have really short arms. And so we, I still joke sometimes with, with this daughter. She's 13 now. Uh, but when she gives me a hug that's, that's not quite all around, I'm like, I don't want a minion hug. I don't want a T-Rex hug. I, give me a big hug. And the arms go all around. I just, I think of that when I see that verse because God has anything but T-Rex arms. It, this is not a minion hug he's offering us. His arms are stretched out still infinitely, eternally. His hand is not shortened at all. He can redeem, and he has proven himself in days that are past. We can trust him with this. 
in verse 4, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. And honestly, in my opinion, that's the best kind of learning you could ever seek. The tongue of the learned too often seems to rejoice in oh, big words and lofty vocabulary and almost confusing their potential learners instead of trying to help them. It's one of my favorite things about what Brigham Young said about Joseph Smith, that he could take heaven and bring it down to earth. That to me is good teaching. Instead of just trying to prove how smart you are as the teacher, make sure the students feel smarter by the time that you're done. And in fact, more than just smarter, more strengthened, more confirmed, more consoled, more comforted. This tongue of the learned, that this righteous servant, here's Messiah language here, he's going to know how to speak a word. It'll be in season, in the, just the right moment. This is the same Lord that, that knows just how hard to blow on the fire so that he doesn't blow it out, who can walk through a sea of reeds that are all bruised and not break a single one. He is gentle. And what kind of word do you need? A word of justice to tell you to work harder or a word of mercy to reassure you that you're working hard enough? He will give the right word in the right season, especially to those that are weary. And if there's power in God's word to wipe away the weariness and give you new life and new hope, that's what the word of God is meant to do. In verse 5 and 6, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. This is still the Messiah speaking. Okay, The same one that strengthens the weary. Well, sometimes he's weary himself. Keep going. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Think about the Savior's deep deep submission in the face of betrayal and denial, in the face of persecution, opposition. Think of him going to Caiaphas' palace with this mock trial. Think of him, and this is already after having bled from every pore in Gethsemane, but him being mocked and scourged by the Romans, him being crucified and nailed to the cross, to be mocked and, and treated as, as one of no account. And yet he submitted to it. He surrendered. And so for him to, to not hide his face, not turn away from shame, from spitting, to give his back to the smiters. Now again, in the crucifixion and in the, in the moments leading up to it, you can see those things happening exactly as prophesied, which makes me wonder about the middle phrase. Is this something that, I, that Isaiah is just throwing in as an extra rhyme? Or is this something that happened true to form, literal fulfillment, like the others did? It just wasn't clarified uh, or specifically mentioned by the gospel writers that he gave his cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I could picture that happening. There are examples in the Old Testament of what happened with, well, I'll put it this way, hair. 
Especially the beard was a symbol of authority and power and maturity, right? Are you old? Think about a, a teenage boy looking for peach fuzz uh, and just wanting to claim manhood. Well, imagine to have a, a full beard. There's this sign of maturity of manhood uh, that I have authority here. Remember, we talked about Elisha and go up thou bald head, go up thou bald head. He might have had a great head of hair, beard and all. But these rebellious teenagers are not honoring his authority. Well, it's one thing to claim that someone doesn't have a beard, quote unquote. It's another thing to try to rip it out of the man's cheeks. And if that, it did happen symbolically to Jesus. But if it happened literally as well, can you imagine that pain? Can you imagine that loss of dignity, of self-respect? There's shame for you. When David's servants, we studied this, when they were, when he sent them to someone, uh, a foreign dignity leader, and the man was so, oh, treated them spitefully. Remember what, they, what he did? He shaved half of their beard and then cut half, off half the clothing and sent them packing back to Jerusalem. The beard. That was one of the things that David said, why don't you stay here until your beards grow back. Stay in confinement. You don't have to go out in public because I know how embarrassing, how shameful it would be for you to be seen by people with half your beard missing. These are the kinds of things that Jesus is going to go through. No wonder earlier in Isaiah, he describes Assyria as a razor who's going to come in and shave Israel, including their beards, just kind of put them in this lowly, shameful place. And that's what our suffering servant is willing to go through for us. In verse 7 through 9, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. This is pure determination. Okay, a rock-like gaze. Face like flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed, no matter what they do to me. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Did you sense the, the shift of tone there? Because back in verse 5 and 6, it was so meek, so submissive. Jesus is lamb in 5 and 6. And a lamb that is going to the slaughter. We'll see that again in chapter 53. But then the tone completely shifts, 180. And in 7 and through 9, it's not the meek and lowly lamb. It is the roaring lion. And he went from total surrender and submissiveness to absolute defiance in the face of those that would attack his people and what he stood for. When it came down to facing the consequences of our sin, he submitted and took it all upon him. But when it comes to the powers of darkness and those that would align themselves against him and his cause, I, I love the boldness of those verses. Who's my adversary? Who will contend with me? Who will condemn me? No one will stand against the Lord. That's a powerful set of contraries that he is proving. What will I submit to? And what will I stand up against? 
And those are things that we have to decide ourselves in times of persecution. Where will I be submissive and where will I stand firm? I do love what he says at the end, <laughs> looking at these enemies thinking, you're, you're nothing to fear because you're not going to be here long. I think how short-lived the Assyrian Empire was, even more so the Babylonian. There's no worries. So when he says you're going to wax old as a garment, the moth is going to eat you up. To think about, especially in those days, that clothing wouldn't last that long. This wasn't the 40 years in the wilderness with the miraculous clothing that lasted the whole time. No, it, it's going to wax old. It will fall apart. And, that, and so will the hopes of mine enemies. It just won't last. The same applies to worldly fads and fashions. And why do we care so much what the world thinks of us when that particular fashion is going to come and go? It will fade quickly. It will wax old. I laugh that when I was a kid, pegging your pants was the style of the day. And I remember when it first started becoming popular, I'm like, I guess I got to do that. And I, I watched other people do it. And you'd, you don't want wide. I mean, it, the bell bottoms of the 70s were such a thing of the past. And so like culture new, normally does, it overswings the pendulum. And we went from too wide to now too skinny. And, uh, and so we got to take our pants leg and fold it, or ro you know, fold it over and then roll up the bottom so it holds it. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever because everybody else said it was. But to me, I still look back at this moment and laugh at myself because I, I, I guess I caught the bug to peg the pants during the winter season. Uh, and so all winter I wore long pants and I pegged them every single day religiously. Uh, that's the problem. Worldly style does become people's religion. But I remember when spring finally came. That happens pretty quick in Southern California, but it was shorts weather again. And I, this is such a vivid memory. I was in the bathroom in my home and I, had, was, I was getting dressed after a shower, and I put shorts on. And the shorts were, you know, pretty baggy at the bottom. And I thought, okay, I know we peg our pants. Are you supposed to peg your shorts? Uh, I can't go to school not looking like I'm in style. And, but I don't know. The, the, the protocol was shorts. And so there I was in the bathroom, and I took the edge of my shorts and folded it over and rolled it up so I would have pegged shorts. And I looked at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, oh, no, no, that can't be right, can't be right. And so I un unfolded it, unrolled it, unpegged it, uh, and went to school like normal. And I was so relieved. Uh, even I knew that that couldn't possibly be stylish. Well, <laughs> who knows if the world would have gone otherwise. I just love that that's the analogy that Isaiah is using. These passing trends. So popular one day, but gone the next. So why would I care so much about what the world thinks? No, I'm going to care about what God thinks. And he hopes we'll do the same. So he says in verse 10, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. What he's saying there is, look around. And see people that truly fear the Lord, they reverence Him, honor His name, they obey the voice of the servants that He has sent, and look at their lives. Does it seem like they're walking in darkness and have no light? That's what he's getting at in this passage. The rhetorical question there is answered with no. They don't look like they're walking in darkness. They're the ones that, that look like they know what they're doing. Even during dark days, 
uh, troubling times, they seem to have this hope, this peace, this reassurance. They seem to have a light in their eyes. And it makes me wish I had one too. It's a beautiful thing that Isaiah is, is pushing there. You, I'll just let you decide. Look around at the difference between those that are living the gospel and those who are not. And those that are living the gospels just seem like, <laughs> like the lights are on. Okay? Compare that to verse 11. I love this description. Behold all ye that kindle a fire. So we're still, you know, why would you do that? Because you need light. It's, it's in the darkness. So all you that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Uh, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. And this shall ye have of mine hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. And what I love about that is compared to the light of the Lord that comes to those that are following his his counsel, keeping his commandments, heeding his prophets, compared to that, what do you got? Uh, yes, you're trying to kindle fire because you do recognize the, the darkness. You don't recognize the source of true light, but you recognize the darkness you're in. And so you're trying to learn how to navigate it. You're trying to bring some kind of illumination. But because you refuse to accept the light of the world, what are you left with? Man-made fires? <laughs> well, what does that amount to? Sparks. That's it. And compared to the, the floodlight of truth that God is willing to give you, and you've got your flint and steel and you're just trying to... And, and yeah, it, it lights up for a second. What? I'll put it this way. When I was a kid, I loved to read. But I had a bedtime and mom and dad were, okay, but at a certain time, it lights out and go to sleep. But I didn't want to stop reading. And, but I didn't want to get in trouble either. So often what I would do was either under my, my bedspread, under my blanket, or I would put it down, a book down on the floor, and I would lean over the backside of my bed where I could still see it down there. It made for a quick getaway in case I heard the door open, right? But I couldn't have a light on, at least not a, a big flashlight. What I ended up using was my watch. And this, this is back in the day. If you remember, back in the day where watches would have a little watch light, and it was the tiniest little spark is all it was. But you hold the button down, and it's just enough light to illuminate the face of the watch so you can see what time it is. Well, for an enterprising, I don't know, six or seven-year-old who just wanted to keep reading, I would take my watch light and just kind of shine it and hope that it would give just the tiniest amount of glow that I could recognize the letters on the page and keep reading. When I read that verse at the end of Isaiah 50, I picture myself with my watch light. I picture people who refuse the light of the world and as a result are left with, with such inferior illumination. It's just a spark. But go ahead, walk in that light. Unfortunately, you will end up lying down in sorrow. So what do we do instead? Well, we turn to Isaiah 51, and what a message of comfort and hope, reassurance the Lord gives us here. He says in verse 1 and 2, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock, whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit, whence ye are digged. 
Now that's a beautiful imagery. There's the rhyme, look to the rock, look to the pit. You were digged out of it. You were, you were carved from that stone. But then he clarifies what he means. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Now it's good advice to look back to Abraham and Sarah in almost any set of circumstances. Okay, this could be uh, Abrahamic covenant context and look back to the promises God made to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, but even more so specifically here, if you are feeling forgotten and forsaken, right? That's their Zion's concern back in chapter uh, 49. Reassurance through 50. Here's some more reassurance through 51. If you think I've forgotten you, then look back to Abraham and Sarah. You think they felt forgotten? Oh, yeah. I had promised them, and then decades passed with no fulfillment. Well, perhaps it was preparation for fulfillment that was happening all along. Because what did Abraham and Sarah become in the meantime? Although people prepared to be the mother and father of the faith. So if you're struggling, if you're wondering, if, if you need faith to patiently persevere, then look to Abraham and Sarah, because that's the rock that you're carved out of. It's the pit that you were dug from. You have patient perseverance in your DNA. It's, it's the family tradition to wait upon the Lord, but to hope against hope, as the New Testament speaks of them, to believe and to have that belief accounted unto them for righteousness. Israel, the promises will be fulfilled just as they were for Abraham and Sarah. So any time you think that your time has passed and it's just too late, I'm well stricken in years and the manner of women is no longer upon me. <laughs> Whatever. Laugh in the face of that, as Sarah did. Hold to faith in spite of doubt, as Abraham did. And welcome an Isaac into the world. A Yitzhak, a laughter, a rejoicing. The blessings will come, and they'll come to you as well, Israel. Even though you're scattered, I promise you'll be gathered. Bank on that. Verse 3, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. That's what he asked us to do back in chapter 40, right? Comfort ye, my people. Well, the Lord's going to join us in that. He does it himself. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all, that's a high percentage, all her waste places. And if that includes you, feeling wasted, feeling like life has passed you by. He is here to comfort you. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving, the voice of melody. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve must have felt cast out of the garden of Eden? Not just a place that grew its own food for you, and no weeds to pull. Rather, a place you got to walk and talk with God. But then to be cast out. If you want to talk about feeling forsaken or forgotten. You were expelled. You were exiled. Down to a lonely and dreary world. Plenty of weeds to, to pull there. And yet, what's the promise? It's the promise of reversal that the earth itself, the desert, will blossom as the rose. That's why Isaiah talks about water imagery and plant imagery so much. 
Well, the ultimate water and plant imagery is the Garden of Eden. And so this good gardener is doing what? Your desolate places, your wilderness will end up looking like paradise itself. The garden of God. And what's the promise? In the 10th article of faith, that there will be a literal gathering of Israel. That Zion, a new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. That Christ will return and reign personally upon the earth. And that this earth, wilderness and all, including every one of her waste places, will be renewed. It will receive its paradisiacal glory. It will become the Garden of Eden. It comes full circle. That's reaching the tree of life. Thank you, Lehi. Thank you, Book of Revelation. But how do we get there? Verse 4 and 5. Hearken unto me, my people. Give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. Mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. It's a long arm, not a short one. And it's one that is worthy of your trust. It will send forth my law and my judgment. And I know those seem like scary words. Can't Law and judgment? Can't I have like mercy and forgiveness instead? Oh, of course. And that's coming. Just wait. But as a prover of contraries, both are what's going to save you. You will be saved as much by my law as by my grace. You will be saved as much by the, my justice as by my mercy. But notice how he says it next. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Again, back to the big pants and the, the old garments and the, the styles that have gone the way of all the earth. Well, the earth itself, I guess, gets to go the way of all the earth, right? The heavens and earth shall pass away, but what won't? God's salvation, his righteousness, his part of the covenant. Think of the way the Doctrine and Covenants ends its first section, that preface where he says in verse 38, What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken. And I excuse not myself. I'm not looking for excuses. I'm not looking for, oh, I I know I planned on fulfilling the covenant. I knew I said I'd bring you home and redeem you. Ah, Sorry, there's some things that got in the way. No, no, I will not excuse myself. Though the heavens and the earth pass away, which you'd think would be permanent. (laughs) No, though they pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled. And we're living in the day of that glorious fulfillment. So verse 7 and 8. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Our ears should perk up. He's speaking to us. Fear ye not the reproach of men. Neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment. Man, clothes don't seem to last long in his day. The worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. I remember in high school, there'd be athletes at my school that would wear t-shirts that say something like, pain is temporary, but pride is forever. And it was just this sense of, I know practice stinks, and I know conditioning is painful. 
oh, but if it gets me in shape so that I can actually win the games that matter, oh, the glory of, of victory will far outlast and outlive the pain of preparation. I get that sense in these verses. Sure, you were reproached by men. Sure, they reviled you. But th that, that will all pass away. The reward for your righteousness will not. So hold on to it. It's like the mocking of the great and spacious building. It fades. Just be patient. Just turn the other cheek or turn away the ear. Hearken not. Don't heed them, as Nephi said. Uh, it, eventually it'll float away. It doesn't have a foundation over there. Whereas the fruit of the tree of life, not only is it white above all that is white and sweet above all that is sweet, uh, there's no expiration date, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> this fruit will last forever. He then says in verse 9 and 10, Awake. In fact, let me tell you to do it again. Awake. Put on strength. O arm of the Lord. Uh, awake. Uh, man, do we keep falling asleep? Do we need this is do we hit the snooze bar? I don't know what happened. Third time, awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab? That's the sea monster, it's like Leviathan that's mentioned in other places. God cut that sea monster apart. He wounded the dragon. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep? that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? Oh, let Moses... <laughs> There's lots of rocks that you were hewn from. You can look back to Abraham for strength. You can look back to Moses for strength because I strengthened Moses. I got him through the, the Red Sea on dry ground. I'll do the same for you. In some ways, I picture the apostles there on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and thinking that, well, Jesus was asleep. And they were content to let him lie there as long as things were easy and good and calm. But when the storm picked up and they were afraid for their own lives, Master, cares thou not that we perish? What are you doing sleeping? Well, Jesus doesn't sleep through our storms. We sometimes let him uh, because we're the ones spiritually sleeping. But to know a God who slumbers not nor sleeps, we saw that passage earlier, he'll always be there for us. In verse 11, he says, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Here's the gathering of Israel. They will come with singing unto Zion. And we heard some of those songs last week. An everlasting joy. By the way, Jacob in the Book of Mormon, when he quotes this verse, he adds the phrase, and holiness. There's Jacob for you. It's not just the joy, it's the holiness too. We, we want to be clean and God will make us that. So we come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy and holiness shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. I love that. No more sorrow, only joy. So hope for it. Wait for it. Live for it. And don't let doubt discourage you. That joy will come from Christ. That's why he says, I, even I. Have you noticed in our study of Isaiah how often that phrase will come up? I, even I. You might want to go back and, and review all of them. What's amazing is God is, is reconfirming to them. It's me. It's me. Okay, that emphasis. It, Christ will come to wipe away every tear from every eye.
Christ will come to replace your mourning with joy. You haven't been cut off. You're not, he didn't divorce you. He wouldn't abandon you. So count on him. What makes us afraid that he has abandoned us is the fact that we're fearing other people that are accusing him of that. And so in verse 12 and 13, he asks, Who art thou that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be as grass? And remember we talked about grass, how quickly it withers? Why would you be afraid of a withering world? And forgettest the Lord thy maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor? Man is nothing. Don't fear him. God is everything. So honor him. In verse 14, the captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. Can you sense someone living in constant fear, existential crisis? Well, welcome to mortality. Just don't leave me stuck here. Loose me. Don't let me die in the pit. He goes on, but I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. Why do we fear the trials of mortality when we have God on our side? In fact, the way he says it there at the end, I plant the heavens. I lay the foundations of the earth. Now, he said earlier, though the heavens pass away, the earth pass away, my word won't. And so he's like reminding them of this. I I made the heavens, the ones that look so permanent. I set the earth, the, the foundation that you stand upon, as permanent as those immovable mountains might be, far more permanent are the promises I've made to you, my people. And that's what will stand forever. I'm the same one who said to Zion, thou art my people. God doesn't believe in divorce when he's the husband. And no matter what the wife has done against him, we'll see this when we get to the book of Hosea in a couple months, God Show me the papers. I've never called a divorce attorney. I've never entertained the thought. You're mine, and I'm yours. If you'll hold on to me, I'm trying to hold on to you. So he says in verse 17, Awake, awake. We keep seeing that word. Earlier it was us trying to wake up God because we thought he was sleeping on the job. Oh, he wasn't. Now he's trying to wake us up because, yes, we were the ones asleep. And we have to be, and we keep falling back to sleep. No wonder he has to tell us twice, awake, awake. In fact, stand up, O Jerusalem. I always have to say that to my youngest daughter when she's awake, quote unquote, but she's still sitting in her bed or lying there. I'm like, no, no, come out, get out, up, out of bed. So stand up, O Jerusalem, which hath drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. I know what you've gone through. Maybe that's why you're trying to stay asleep. You're afraid of waking up and having to face a world with all of its harsh consequences. Well, the consequences you faced at the hands of the Assyrians or will face at the hands of the Babylonians, 
Yes, you brought those upon yourself, but I am a God of mercy. So awake and stand up and let's move forward. I'll carry you through. Now in verse 18 and 19, he says, There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. And that's not good because notice what she faces. These two things are coming to thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction. And then if you want to rhyme it, famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Now that's a tricky passage because of the way the language is organized, the phrases. But we've got to make sense of it because it's important. Once again, Israel is being symbolized as a woman. We've seen that often, right? Who hath begotten me these? All my children are back. Well, here's the opposite. Where are my children? I know I have more than these, but no one is coming to comfort me. No one is here to feel sorry for me and help me through these difficult days. Picture a mother who gave everything to her children and spent her life in self-sacrifice in benefit of those that she gave birth to. And imagine her now near the end of her life, wondering why no one ever comes to visit and no one calls. She waits by her phone on Mother's Day and it never rings. And there she is at the, the, the old folks home, feeling like she was put out to pasture. And of all my children that I did so much for, who's going to feel sorry for me and who's going to come and comfort me? That's what Isaiah is, is the symbol he's pushing. And he says, among all the sons that you brought forth, isn't there any that's going to come and help you? Again, literally, what's he talking about? Israel. Are any of your people going to rise up and wake the rest of them up? Are any of the people going to comfort ye my people and make a difference here? Well, he answers in verse 20, Thy sons have fainted. And then Jacob, when he quotes this verse, adds this phrase, Save these two. So there will be two sons. This, this remnant that remains that will actually do it. So thy sons have fainted, save these two. They lie at the head of all the streets, as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Now what is that all about? It's confusing in the King James without that phrase, save these two. It just seems like, okay, your sons are, have all fainted, and now they're a wild bull in a net. And you're like, okay, that sounds like Israel in captivity. But what if it's those two righteous? Now, some have taken this, and I think it's a good interpretation, and connected it to Revelation chapter 11, where there are two prophets there in Jerusalem that have been persecuted to the point of being martyred for the cause. Oh, but <laughs> just wait for those raging bulls to come bursting out of the net again. Because after three and a half days, they are raised from the dead to continue performing their work. It's interesting to see them hinted at in this passage. That the rest of the sons may have fainted, but these two, and whether that's a, those literal two prophet seers and revelators that are assigned there to Jerusalem in the last days, that's definitely possible. Or, not an either or, but a both and, could it also represent the kinds of people in the kingdom of God that you just can't keep down? And they are determined to rise no matter how many times that they've been 
the pushed aside. And that, by this point, when they, we're here to redeem Israel. We're here to gather our fallen brothers and sisters. We're here to wake up the family. Do you not know what Israel is? It's a sleeping giant. And so here we are, a bull in a net. You might think that you've confined us. But look out for these horns. We are going out like the 12 oxen beneath the baptismal fonts to, to break the cords of this net and go out across the earth and gather the rest of the family, herd the rest of the family home. That's the burden that we bear, and we're, pre- we're prepared to bear it off triumphant. In verse 21, he says, Therefore hear now this, thou afflicted, and drunken, but not with wine, Remember earlier we saw drunkenness as a symbol, an analogy for the apostasy? Well, what's he talking about here? Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, Bow down that we may go over and thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. There's another one of those glorious reversals of fortune that Isaiah loves to, to emphasize. Drunken not on wickedness, because you've, been awakened, you've awakened to that, and, and you've tried to change. You've been drunken on the cup of fury, the fullness of the wrath of, the, of Almighty God. But it's kind of awakened you to the consequences of your sin and your repenting. That's good. Because through repentance, and more importantly, through redemption on the part of Christ, that cup of trembling will be taken from you. No more cup of fury. Christ drank it all himself, down to the dregs. And as a result, we can be clean. That's... That's the promise that leads into Isaiah chapter 52. So no wonder Jacob can't even take a breath between the chapters. He's just got to keep going. Uh, He's going to read from the end of 51 into the beginning of 52 because it's such a perfect lead in. So he says in 52, 1 and 2, Awake, awake. So many times. We have to be reminded of that. We keep hitting the snooze bar for crying out loud. So awake, awake. Sounds like Elder Uchtdorf. Are you sleeping through the restoration? I pray not. So again, awake, awake. And now that you're awake, what should you do? Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This is a new start for a new Jerusalem. The one that the Lord wants to build and wants us to build with him. This new Zion with its new Zion people. What do you do? Well, first you wake up. Okay? In fact, wake up again. <laughs> Make sure that you're, you, this, this sleep is completely behind you. And typically, once you get out of bed and you're ready to take on the day, what do you do? First, you, you get dressed. And what's Zion supposed to clothe herself in? Strength. Beauty. 
the garments of praise, charity like a mantle, to see holy garments that Zion is clothing herself with, and then what? Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down. That seems strange. Get up, no, no, go back down. But if you think about it, if you've been sitting in the dust, down on the ground, in your oh, bondage to the wicked world, but now you're getting up and you're dusting yourself off. Shake thyself from the dust. Lehi, by the way, is going to focus on this idea when he talks to his sons near the end of his life and tells them to arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. To shake off the chains with which you are bound and put on these robes of righteousness. Put on the armor of God. That's what's happening here to Zion. Get up, shake, your, shake off the dust that you got when you were down on the ground. But now that you're up and you're kind of straightened and, and beautifully clothed, now you can sit back down. Not on the ground like you did before, but on a throne that I have set apart for you. In fact, it's my throne, but there's room for us all. So come and sit with me. In the third Nephi version of this, by the way, third Nephi 20, Jesus is speaking of Isaiah's prophecies. He, he's been doing that for a while. He talks about his own role in them, in their fulfillment, namely as the, the God of the gathering, the good shepherd bringing all of his sheep back home. But then he says this, when that happens, when the gathering has occurred, this is in 3520, verse 36 and 37, then shall be brought to pass that which is written, awake, Awake again, and put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. You see what he's doing there? It's not just Jacob that quotes these verses as his grand finale. It's the Lord who quotes these verses as almost an introduction of sorts. The day will come when I have gathered my people home to me. And it's in that day. Then shall be brought to pass... Oh, it's go time, Isaiah, exactly as you said it would be. And you, Zion, you, my people, will look as glorious as I do, clothed in the robes of my righteousness. So think about the passage that we're seeing here, Isaiah 52, right at the start. Uh, Isaiah is emphasizing it there to a people that feel forgotten, but it's just a matter of time. You will, you will grow in righteousness. You will dust yourself off. You'll be fully awake, spiritually speaking. Jacob teaches that principle, those, quotes those verses to his people at a time of difficulty. Jesus comes and reassures the gathered Nephites there in Bountiful. The day will come where the Book of Mormon will come forth to mark the, the work of the Father preparing or being accomplished in the last days. And that's when this will take place. I mean, these verses from Isaiah are incredibly important. In fact, uh, so we've seen it in Jacob's day, we've seen it in Jesus' day. Fast forward to the final dispensation, and if you remember section 113 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's when Joseph is working on the JST of Isaiah, and he has some questions about it. Most of his questions come from early on, like chapter 11, which was one that uh, the angel Moroni quoted to him. And so it's like, yeah, I need to understand that chapter. Uh, can you help me out a little bit? But in the midst of his Q&A, a friend of his named Elias Higby is watching and like, wait, God's really on the other side of the line. Uh, he's talking, you're doing a Q&A with heaven? Can I get in on this? 
because they're speaking of Isaiah. I know you're interested in chapter 11. I'm kind of focused on chapter 52. Now, I don't know if Elias knows his Isaiah really well, or if he's just noticed his Book of Mormon really well, and everybody seems to quote this passage. Uh, and, and the Lord said, when the work has been accomplished in the latter days, at the time of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, that's when you'll know that these things are brought to pass. So I'm really interested. What did you mean by that passage at the beginning of Isaiah 52? So in section 113, verse 7 and 8, questions by Elias Higby. What is meant by the command in Isaiah, 52nd chapter, first verse, which saith, put on thy strength, O Zion? What people had Isaiah reference to? Is that the Jews? Is that a restored house of Israel? Who is this? And the answer? He had reference to those whom God should call in the last days, who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel. And to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she, Zion, has a right to by lineage, also to return to that power which she had lost. Oh, you got that, Elias? In fact, interesting name, since Elias is a preparer of the way. <laughs> it's not just the Higby version of Elias. It's all of us Eliases. And as we prepare the way for the coming of Christ, as we put, how do we do that? We put on strength. We put on our beautiful garments. And that is priesthood authority and priesthood power. When we go to God's house to be clothed with priesthood power, with priesthood garments, to put on those beautiful garments, male and female alike, so that together we can be fully clothed fully covered by the atonement, fully empowered and authorized to move forward in the work of, the, of gathering everyone else. That's what's happening. And we're living it in this dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, Elias is on a roll. He got an answer and he's thrilled by that. He's got another question though. So he asks in verse 9 and gets the answer in verse 10, what are we to understand by Zion loosing herself from the bands of her neck? Second verse. Because those bands seem to be getting in the way. Uh, no wonder Lehi said, shake off the chains. You can't put the clothing on if you got the chains underneath. Okay? Uh, I don't know if, I'm gonna, if these beautiful garments will fit if I still have these bands around my neck. So how do I get rid of those? And the Lord's answer? We are to understand that the scattered remnants are exhorted to return to the Lord from whence they have fallen. And remember, in Greek, the turning is repentance. So we've got to repent. We've got to come back to God, which if they do, the promise of the Lord is that he will speak to them or give them revelation. See the sixth, seventh, and eighth verses. So keep reading, Elias. You'll, you'll notice what I'm talking about there. The bands of her neck are the curses of God upon her or the remnants of Israel in their scattered condition among the Gentiles. So you understand where I'm coming from with that, Elias? All you Eliases. You've got to repent so that the shackles come off, so that the, the chains can be broken and you can rise to your full potential. You can put on these beautiful garments and strengthen yourself in the power and authority of the priesthood. That's what I'm asking this final dispensation to do.
No wonder section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants, another glorious revelation, includes this phrase. For Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness. Her borders must be enlarged. Her stakes must be strengthened. Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. The Lord is calling us into Isaiah 52. He's telling us it's time. That's what I told the Nephites 1,800 years ago. It's time. So put on your beautiful garments. Arise, awake, dust yourself off. Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Get ready for this, okay? And along those same lines, enlarged borders and strengthened stakes. Hold on to that because we'll come back to that metaphor later. I mean, the Lord doesn't go long without quoting Isaiah almost anywhere. But go back to Isaiah. And in 52 verse 3, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Interesting. Satan didn't pay a thing for you. You sold yourself for naught, for nothing. You gave yourself away. You ever done that? I don't know, a garage sale or something online, and you sell something, and you realize that the person was way too eager, and that's when you find out later, I could have gotten so much more for that. They knew the deal when they saw it, and I didn't. I didn't. Well, that happens to us every time we sell ourselves to the adversary because he doesn't have anything good to give us in return. We've sold ourselves for nothing. But what does the Lord do? He steps in and redeems us without money. His is going to come at much greater cost than anything money could possibly buy. But interesting how how the adversary looks at you and thinks you are worthless and will buy you on the cheap, on the free. In fact, you'll end up paying for it yourself. Whereas the Lord sees you and recognizes the worth of souls is great in his sight and will pay for your life with his own. Which side do you want to choose, my friends? He then says in verse 4 and 5, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. Remember those days back in Moses' time period and before? Uh, Rough times, weren't they? And the Assyrian, now let's fast forward to more uh, current events, the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. I know you've been through that. Egyptian bondage, Assyrian scattering, soon-to-be Babylonian captivity, uh, later Roman rule. You're going to go through it. But notice what he says next. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually, every day is blasphemed. I mean, I'm aware of all that you've suffered under the hands of the ungodly. No wonder I want to come to redeem you. So he says in 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. We could rephrase that. Behold, I am. Yeah, I remember Moses in Egypt. I remember introducing myself to him. And when he wondered what I called myself and how I, he should introduce me to a people that, that didn't know me, it would be by that. I am that I am. And he still is. In verse 7 and 8 then, all important phrase, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. And good tidings, that's the good news. That's where the word gospel comes from. That's the evangelium, the the evangel. When we think of evangelical Christians, we are included in that number. Uh, We don't do the registered trademark (laughs) like uh, like evangelical Christians in the Bible Belt, for example, do. No, we're the evangelical Christians. Well, what's an evangelical Christian? It's a Christian that rejoices in the good news, in the evangel. Evangelio for you Spanish speakers. It's It's the good news. And to rejoice in that, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring that. I was a paper boy when I was a kid. I didn't tell the girls that. I was in high school and I was still a paper boy. Uh, it was the only job I could have and still have like time for football practice and, and school after, or, and, and homework after school. But early mornings I was out delivering newspapers and I would tell the girls instead when they asked me what I did for, a, for my job, I said, oh, I'm a communications distribution specialist. Mm-hmm. Sounds much more lofty than paper boy. But I, I delivered the news. It wasn't always good. Uh, it usually isn't. But for two years in Puerto Rico, oh, I was a paper boy, and it was nothing but good news I was sharing. It was glorious. And there was something about my feet (laughs) poking out through the holes in my shoes as I'd been pounding the pavement because I just wanted the world to know what I had to offer them. I was an evangelical missionary. (laughs) I'm still an evangelical Latter-day Saint. When my son... When we lived in Tennessee, there in the Bible Belt, surrounded by trademarked evangelical Christians, my oldest son went to a born-again Christian uh, uh, preschool. And, and they had Bible study as part of their day. It was awesome. And he'd come home and I'd say, son, what'd you learn today? And he always had great things to report. One day he came home and he said, dad, Eve did a bad thing. And I smiled and he said, oh, let's correct some false doctrine and talk about the fortunate fall, shall we? Eve did a brave thing and it was good. Well, let's talk. But my favorite was one day he came home with his little illustrated Bible under his arm. And he said, Dad, i got to read my Bible so Jesus can save me. And I was like, hallelujah, son. i got a little born-again Mormon on my hands. Just like we want. And to be a bearer of good tidings, that's, that's what we're after. That's what we've been called to be. We're supposed to wake up the world. We're supposed to comfort God's people. We're supposed to have feet so beautiful because we're running so fast, right? Yeah, sparks on the hooves, wheels like whirlwinds. Uh, we don't have time to pick up dirt. We're flying. We are sharing the good news of the gospel. So how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace in the name of the Prince of Peace himself, that bringeth good tidings of good, Doesn't that sound like the angels that came to the shepherds to announce Christ's birth? We are here with good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And we get to be those angels now. We are bringing good tidings of good. We're publishing salvation that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. He really is in charge. It's okay. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. That's what God's servants will do. And we get to be those servants. Forgive me for getting evangelical here. Actually, don't. I'm not sorry at all. Uh, But to be engaged in the work of God 
to be among those beautiful feet, to be standing on the mountains, the mountain of the Lord. That's where we go to be clothed upon. That's where we go to put on our beautiful garments and receive authority and power to be endowed with power from on high so that we can then go forth and help the nations flow up to that mountain themselves. That's publishing peace. And it's not just good tidings of good. It's great tidings of a great and marvelous work. And it has come forth unto the children of men. Now, if that's what we do, how will people react? Verse 9 and 10. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The world will see the results of this glorious gathering and they will come with singing. They will break forth into joy. No wonder Abinadi's eyes must have lit up when the priests of Noah asked him to explain those verses. I mean, when, I, when we talked about this in the Book of Mormon year, two years ago, uh, we spent a lot of time here because it's amazing what Abinadi is going to do with their question. He's going to answer it, but not for like three chapters later. And he goes on the most glorious tangent to bring in all kinds of other truth that they need to know. But in that lesson, Abinadi is faced with these priests of Noah who throw the verse in his face and say, explain that one to us. Now, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, I see what they're doing. They're trying to trip him up and trap him with a passage that's really, really hard to understand. And so, of course, they're going to go with Isaiah, right? Because Isaiah is famous for being incomprehensible. So when the priests of Noah say, oh, yeah, Abinadi, explain this one. Of course, he's going to get trapped. Well, I remember once thinking about it going, wait a minute. If you're trying to trap somebody with confusing passages in Isaiah, don't go with Isaiah 52, verse 7. That's a glorious passage. Go with some of the stuff we studied like two weeks ago. That's really weird. Uh, Some of the historical elements or just like, wait, what are fitches and cumin and how do you harvest stuff? I don't know. Uh, There's lots of difficult passages. This isn't necessarily one of them. Which means the priests of Noah had a different thought in mind. They're not trying to trip him up with confusion. They're trying to accuse Abinadi of of being a false prophet. Because... And this is what is mind-blowing. What kind of true messengers are described in that verse? The ones that publish peace. The ones that reassure people that all is well. And what are the priests of Noah hinting at? Abinadi, you're not doing that. We are. See, the people are living a certain way that you call wicked. And by coming in here and crying repentance, telling them that we're we're living in, in the dirt And we need to get up and dust ourselves off and clean up our our house? No. That makes people feel bad. Makes them feel dirty and uncomfortable. And so you need to do what we do, which is tell them that all is well in Zion. So go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry, because there's no consequence. There's no piper coming, so you don't have to pay anyone. There is no law of the harvest. So it's all good. Uh, there's no law, or if there is, well, we'll do our token sacrifices according to the law of Moses, and then we're good. Easy grace. And we've published peace. No wonder our people can rejoice, just like Isaiah said they ought to. 
Now can you understand why Abinadi is just dumbfounded? Like, really? That's why you've been preaching what you've preached? Wow. As we said then, two years ago in that video, there's this gap between beliefs and behaviors. And they both recognize it, and they both want to eliminate the gap, because that gap is filled with guilt, and that's not a good feeling. So what do the priests of Noah do? Let's take law and bring it down to life. Let's take belief and bring it down to behavior. And by doing so, we've eliminated the guilt gap. And nobody has to feel bad. We just published peace. And check out our beautiful feet. huh? Nobody feels bad anymore for their sins. Because they're not sins. We're not going to call it that. And what's Abinadi do instead? Oh, you've created a false, a virtual reality. That isn't how things are. It's not how things really are. And unfortunately, it will be a rude awakening when the jack in the box, <laughs> dun, 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 and it comes bursting forth and pushes the line of law back to where it really stands. Now you're in a world of hurt. You're in the guilt gap, and it's too late to do anything about it. So, no, don't create an alternate universe. Instead, honor the distance. And let God hold to his law, and we can hold to our beliefs, even though we know we're falling short. God knows that too, which is why he fills the guilt gap with grace. He calls it the grace gap. And it holds these other two in this tension, where I'm not going to lower my standard, because it's that standard that will change and exalt you. But I will fill this gap with grace so that you have time and motivation and enabling power to change. You can grow up in God. And I'll allow you to. In fact, I'll enable you to. And by the time that guilt gap is eliminated, it will be because you have grown up into your beliefs. Your behaviors now match them. You live the law. You understand what a what Abinadi is after, and what the is is exactly what the the priests of Noah are say they're after themselves. And it's summarized in that glorious passage in Isaiah 52. But again, to see how Abinadi gets them there, it's like, oh, great question. I, I love Isaiah 52 also. And I promise I'll get to an answer eventually. But since you asked about Isaiah 52, can I pass through Isaiah 53 on the way? And then I'll come back to Isaiah 52, having explained the atonement of Jesus Christ so that you know about the grace that fills the gap that you're so <laughs> eager to eliminate. By the end of his discussion, Abinadi has answered their question. He's clarified, he's expelled their false doctrine. He's done the, the jack-in-the-box and filled the gap with grace. But then when he's finished, he's like, oh yeah, your question, Isaiah 52. What's up with those beautiful feet? Well, let me answer. And what, I, what Abinadi does is the feet of those that publish peace are people like me. Oh, people like one of you will soon become, looking at you, Alma. Uh, people, like, people like the Lord himself, the Prince of Peace, who will publish peace better than anyone. The, what he does is there are publishers of peace past, present, and future who are all trying to follow the Prince of Peace himself. And you want to talk about beautiful feet? <laughs> Prophets and, and servants, disciples, 
past, present, and future, all surrounding the glorious feet of Jesus himself, those beautiful, scar-bearing feet of the Prince of Peace himself. That's how beautiful upon the mountains. Oh, it's pedicures for everyone, baby. Uh, what's happening here, it's ah, to see what Abinadi is describing, and we get to be a part of it. So go around barefoot more often. Uh, look at your feet and see how beautiful are they. Are they rising above the dust of the world and helping lift other people to higher standards of living themselves? Am I publishing peace? And I get to be a part of that. He then says, back to Isaiah 52, verse 11, how do we join this crowd? Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. And as we've said before, those vessels are the tabernacle furnishings, the temple instruments, the ones that have been carried off captive into Babylon with the people. That's going to happen 120 years from now, Isaiah will say. But they will return when Cyrus the Great comes, when Persia comes to gobble up the Babylonian Empire. He'll say with Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zerubbabel, go back, rebuild your temple. In fact, take your temple furnishings and go back to Jerusalem with them. But who's going to be worthy to carry them? Well, those that are clean enough to bear the vessels of the Lord. In verse 12 and 13, he says, You shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. And in fact, you won't have to. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This won't be some kind of jailbreak. Okay? This won't be uh, running for your lives to get away from the, the, the Persians. No, they understand who you are and whose you are. They, Cyrus recognized himself like we saw last week. Your God was aware of me, called me by name over a century ago. This is incredible. I think your God uh, is, is the God and <laughs> beats all the Persian ones. So please go with my blessing uh, and we'll honor whatever it is that your God requires. Now this, this is going not with haste, not by flight. God leads the way. In a similar way, how are we gathering Israel in our day? How are we departing Babylon and returning to God? Not with some kind of frantic, overzealous, fanatical, toxic perfectionism. No. We know that God has filled the gap with grace and is giving me time and power to change. Yes, repent, but do it peacefully. Yes, improve, progress. Yes, grow up in God, but don't run faster than you have strength. Don't, don't get lazy on the one hand. Don't fall asleep. Awake, awake, arise. But don't get overzealous on the other. There is a slow and steady that wins the race, and it is following Christ. That's what discipleship demands. Just follow him. He knows the right pace. He gently leads those who are with young. Right? Then you see in verse 14 and 15 what he'll do 
to make sure that the pace is right, what he'll do to make sure everyone can keep up with him, what he'll do to balance the demands of justice and mercy, what he's done to make sure that his feet stand out in the crowd of beautiful feet, because his are, yes, beautiful, but also brutally scarred. So notice in 14 and 15 of Isaiah 52, and this leads in to Isaiah 53, as many were astonished at thee, that means astonished, shocked by what they saw. His visage, that's his countenance, his face, was so marred, more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So, so because of that, by that, shall he sprinkle many nations. Now in the Old Testament, we saw that the priests would sprinkle all kinds of things with the blood of the sacrifice. They'd sprinkle the altar, they'd sprinkle the temple, they'd sprinkle themselves and their fellow priests. That's what it requires to become clean. So he will come and sprinkle many nations. Joseph Smith actually changed the word sprinkle. It's so, I, th I think the sprinkle word is beautiful when you think of the Old Testament imagery, but I also love the change Joseph makes by inspiration. He changes sprinkle to gather. Well, in some ways, which one's right? Both of them are. It's because of the blood of the Lamb sprinkled upon all nations that they can be gathered out of wicked Babylon to begin with. So he's gathering many nations. And as a result, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Now I imagine it takes a lot to leave a king speechless. I mean, kings can say anything they want to anyone they want at any time they want, right? I imagine kings don't keep their mouth closed very often. And yet these kings, the kings of the earth, that are seen, the gathering of all nations, are speechless. This is a marvelous work and a wonder. This is something I've never considered before. But it also might be something else that leaves them speechless. And it's this, this marred man. It's, it's looking at a face that is so changed because of the agony that it is undergoing that kings can't say a word. It might even be the fact that these kings recognize in this suffering servant a king that outranks them. It is kings seeing a king of kings who was willing to abdicate his throne, that was willing to empty himself of glory and come down to be on the level of his lowliest subjects? Now that's something no king would ever consider doing. But this king of kings has done just that. And look what it cost him. Are they left speechless by the shock of condescension on the part of this great king? Are they seen in Christ who they aspire to rise <laughs> to become, but who has lowered himself far beyond anything they would ever imagine. And to be, to be willing to do that, to leave the throne, to go groveling in the dust so that he could pick us up and dust us off and bring us back home with him. That's the introduction to Isaiah 53 which is the greatest of all of the servant songs of Isaiah. 
Isaiah has four servant songs. This is what scholars have seen and tried to understand everything that Isaiah is doing and this tapestry he's weaving. They notice this phrase about a servant that comes up with these beautiful poetic lines that follow to try to explain almost a hymn of praise to this servant that Isaiah is prophesying. The first one, the first servant song was Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4. It has the phrase, behold my servant. So that's where you can spot. Oh, here's another servant song. It's the one about the bruised reed not being broken, the smoking flax not being quenched. That's how wise this servant is. The second servant song we saw last week in chapter 49, 1 through 6, thou art my servant. And that's the one about the polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty. Ready to, be, ready to fly toward the target. The third servant song we saw today. It's the beginning of Isaiah 50. It's 4 through 11. It says, they, That obeyeth the voice of his servant. That's what tips us off to another servant song. That's the one about the tongue of the learned who gave his back to the smiters and didn't hide his, his face from shame or spitting. And then this one. The way Isaiah 52 ended, starting in verse 13, and then going all the way through chapter 53, the entire chapter is the fourth and final, the, the climactic servant song. It's where he said, my servant shall deal prudently. He's not going to be frantic or rushed. But what will that prudent servant do? His face will be marred. Kings will look on him in shock and astonishment. Because what's happening to him? That's where Isaiah 53 comes in. No wonder Abinadi wanted to bring his hearers here. Do you know what makes Christ's feet so beautiful? It's the scars they bore and bear. Do you know what makes him able to fill the guilt gap with grace? It's because of what he did for us. He, in fact, speaking of the gap, he comes down to our lowest level. On the way down, he filled the gap with all of that grace. And then he stays there to be able to bring us up, step by step, at our pace, to trying to help us live up to divine expectations. That's what the atonement is. And so Abinadi teaches all of chapter 53 of Isaiah. This is Mosiah 14. He then explains it in Mosiah 15 to answer the, the question of those that he was trying to convert. It worked for Alma, and it changed the history of the church among the Nephites. This one chapter did, Isaiah 53. So let's read it. Verse 1, who hath believed our report? I mean, if, the, if news like this leaves even kings speechless, then no wonder it's going to be hard for other people to believe at first. Who will believe it? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. This is a young green shoot. As a root out of a dry ground. Are you remembering Isaiah chapter 11? This stem growing from the stump of Jesse. New life growing out of death. This is a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. Other translations say no beauty, no majesty. Yeah, this king has emptied himself of all of that. 
And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now wait, I thought you said that his feet were beautiful upon the mountains. Well, yes, they are once they reach those mountains. But as he's wandering through the valley of the shadow of death, looking for lost lambs that he can carry home with him, he won't have that kind of worldly beauty that attracts the gaze of people that want to be seen by men themselves. No. It's interesting because people talk about charisma. If you actually look at the real meaning and the root of that word, it speaks of anointing. And there's, I mean, the real charisma comes from God. But the kind of worldly charisma that that people talk about, think about what seems to win elections, what seems to attract people. And so often it's physical attractiveness. Often it's physical stature. Uh, It's how tall are you or how in shape are you or how beautiful are you? Uh, You remember the stories about the shift from radio to television with uh, presidential debates and people that, oh, you just don't look presidential. A lot of people were presidents that didn't look like they could have been, but that was before the day that they were so visible on TV all the time. But to think about wealth, prominence, prestige, uh, name recognition, uh, earlier accomplishments, whatever those things are that, that might get your name on the ticket, that get people to look at you, that are charisma, as, that, uh, signs of charisma as far as the world is concerned, the suffering servant won't have any of those. No real name recognition. He's going to come from Nazareth. What good thing can come from Nazareth? Oh, for some family tree? No, he's going to be considered an illegitimate child from some woman that was pregnant before wedlock. Oh, to be, have power? No, he's a carpenter. To have wealth? No. Foxes have holes. He won't even have a, a place to lay his head. Surely then physical attractiveness, right? People just see him and are drawn. Well, they're drawn all right, but not by what they see in him physically, rather in what they feel from him spiritually. This is a fascinating passage because so often when Jesus is portrayed in paintings or in movies or whatever it might be, there is a physical attractiveness. Uh, There is a charisma. There is that. that Okay, but it reminds me in some ways of what uh, Arnold Freeberg said about his Book of Mormon paintings, when people would complain, like, those Nephites are way too buff. And he said, then quit looking at the physical appearance, because that's all I'm able to show with paint. What I'm trying to convey is their spiritual strength, which I cannot show on canvas. Instead, I just give them <laughs> bulging biceps. Okay, See what I'm trying to represent. And I'm sure that those that are trying to portray Jesus are doing what they can with the physical appearance. But this verse says that's not what brought people to him. There was something different. By the way, some have said similar things about Joseph Smith, that people only followed him because of his charisma. Uh, And he just had this magnetic personality, and that's why people were drawn to him. They got duped by by that to fall prey to the, the crazy things he was trying to say that happened to him. But the irony there, most people joined the church before they ever met Joseph Smith. 
Think about the converts from England and Scandinavia and, that were coming, pouring into the kingdom. Joseph never went there. They came to know Joseph after they had already come to know that he was a prophet of God. It wasn't that. It wasn't physical charisma. And the same would be true of Jesus. But then the next verse is where you really see why his visage was so marred. Why, of course, it's not physical appearance that is drawing people. It's not that kind of beauty that, that we desire because he didn't have that. It had been taken from him because of all that he'd suffered. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Can you hear the rhymes repeating these lamentable lines, what he's going through, he is despised. That word comes up twice. And it's a powerful word if you unpack it. He was despised. It means he was looked at as despicable. He was looked at with contempt. This is the same word in Hebrew that was used to describe what Esau felt about his birthright. He despised it. That, is, that means nothing to me. It's worth less than this mess of pottage. I don't care about it. It's the same word in Hebrew that was used for how Goliath looked at David. He looked down on him as nothing. Why would you send this boy out to take on me, the mighty, the mighty warrior of the Philistines? I despise him. I don't give him the time of day. It's the same word in the Hebrew of how Michal felt about David when she saw her husband dancing and leaping before the Ark of the Covenant. And she's embarrassed by him and, and calls him out for it. In fact, it's the same word in Hebrew that, that Nathan uses when he confronts King David about the death of Uriah. And he says, you despised the commandments of God when you did that. You spat in the face of righteousness and lowered yourself to that level. Did you not care at all about what God had commanded you? That's despising things. And the Lord, this suffering servant, this, this is the greatest of all messianic prophecies. And the Messiah will be despised and rejected of men. Rejected can also mean forsaken. Rejected often seems to suggest that it's presented and you say, no, I'm not interested. But forsaken seems to suggest that you were with him at one point and you followed him, but then you forsook him. And the Lord was despised and rejected of men. When it says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, sorrows and grief can also be translated suffering and pain. Choose which one you deal with more and understand that Christ empathizes perfectly. Because this can refer to both physical pain or emotional pain. Which makes me wonder if it can refer to physical illness, can it also refer to mental illness? And that Jesus is familiar with it all? In fact, not just familiar, that word acquainted, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief, he's acquainted with pain, he's acquaint, acquainted with illness. It comes from that Hebrew verb that we saw early on in Genesis and elsewhere, yada, which means to know, 
something. But to know it so personally, to know it so intimately, that there's not a piece of it you don't comprehend. So when it says that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he is so familiar with it that there is a, an intimate relational knowledge with suffering of suffering that Jesus has because he condescended to our level to be able to experience it. He took all of it upon himself. He lowered himself beneath all things so he would know what it's like to hit rock bottom. He's well acquainted with it. And also notice, there's a part of me that wishes we could just stick with the third person. Uh, distant. He's despised and rejected of men. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was despised. That, yeah, by others. By, not, definitely not by me. No, it was by me too. That's why he uses the word we in his rhymes. Yes, he is despised and rejected of men. But if you're feeling safe and spared, like you didn't have anything to do with it, no. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. Well, he was despised. Oh, that's a good passive voice. No, no fingers are being pointed. Well, now the fingers are pointing back at us. We esteemed him not. We're as guilty of this as anyone else. And Christ came down to our level to free us from our own sins, including the sin of having rejected him. When it says that we hid, as it were, our faces from him, there seems to be a natural tendency to look away from someone who's in obvious agony. I mean, it's interesting because there's a part of us, I don't know if the natural man, the, the rubberneckers on the freeway or something that's just drawn, I, I want to look. But at the same time, there's this, I can't look. i got to look away. I don't know if it's what it is about human nature that does that. But to look away and hide our face, are, do we just feel sorry for him? Or do we feel guilty because we caused that? There's so much in that beautiful verse. And then he says in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. There's the personal pronouns. This is us again. We're implicated here. It was our grief. It was our sorrow. And he bore it. He carried it. He's carrying us. And yet the irony, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Remember Job's friends, quote-unquote, miserable counselors all that were accusing him, wow, you are suffering? You must be smitten of God. What did you do wrong? Because only the guilty suffer. And since you're suffering intensely, you must be intensely guilty. And remember Job, that can't, doesn't, that, none of that makes sense to him. Well, you want to talk about the irony of someone far better than Job? Remember we talked about that in, when we studied Job, that he helps us catch a glimpse of the mortal feelings of Jesus having to suffer innocently for things he didn't do? Well, it's things that we did do, but all of that guilt has been passed to him, and so where does that leave him? Suffering for our sorrows, bearing our griefs. And yet, ironically, we look at him, we look down on him, and we think, 
what did he do to deserve that? He must have done horrible things. He is stricken and afflicted and smitten of God. It's this horrible irony of looking down on someone because they're dirty. But the only reason they're dirty is because they've been cleaning up our mess. And that's exactly what's happened to Jesus. It's our, it's on us. I'm not guilty of the things you're accusing me of, my friends, Job would say. But imagine if they were guilty of all of those things and Job was suffering in their stead. It's exactly what Jesus does. That's what verse 5 explains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. There's four rhymes there, four rounds of repetition to rivet our attention to the point Isaiah is trying to make. Each one has a pair of pronouns that link us to the Lord. In fact, bind us together in a way that, that we switch spots. Notice, it's our transgressions, but his wounds that came as a result. It's our iniquities, but his bruises. It was our peace that came at the cost of his chastisement. And it was his stripes, those lashes on his back, that brought us healing. This is the role reversal that's at the core of a substitutionary atonement, of Christ's willingness to take our place so that, he, so that we could take his. This is Jesus taking Barabbas' spot on the cross, this is Jesus taking Joseph of Arimathea's spot in the tomb. This is Jesus taking the, the dirt and filth from the feet of his apostles. Certainly not beautiful then. But washing them and wiping them onto the towel wherewith he was girded. He was wearing that. So stains from off your feet onto my robes of righteousness. This is switching places. And this is the Lord looking at every one of us and saying, I'll take your place as guilty and requiring punishment so that you can take my place as one deserving of glory. To me, one of the most touching moments in Joseph Smith's life came near, near the very end of it. As he's in Nauvoo and he catches wind from one of his bodyguards that there's a mob planning to cross the river and come find him drag him back across the river down to Missouri where an extermination order is still on the heads of every Latter-day Saint. And Joseph wonders, I don't know what to do. Uh, the rascal beater in the hands of one of my bodyguards is be, will be insufficient against a mob, so what should I do? He went down the street and knocked on the door of a friend of his, William Huntington, and asked him, Dear William, a mob's on its way and I don't know what to do. Counsel me. And the counsel was more like comfort. And the advice was more like an atonement of sorts. Because what William Huntington said to Joseph was, I know exactly what to do. You get in my bed, 
and I'll get in yours. We'll switch spots. And Joseph took him up on the offer, knowing what that would mean if the mob ended up coming, and sure enough, it did. It broke in and it grabbed what, who they thought was Joseph and dragged him down to the river, where there in the light of the moon they realized that they'd been had. But they took out their frustration on William Huntington and, and beat him like a dog, it says, and sent him back into Nauvoo. He stumbled back to his own home and when Joseph saw him, he saw in his wounds suffering that was intended for himself. And he threw his arms around William Huntington and said, I promise you in the name of the Lord, you will never taste of death. And sure enough, when death came to William Huntington, years and years later, it was peaceful with no bitter taste at all. He'd already tasted the bitterness. And he tasted it for his friend. He tasted it for Joseph. And Jesus tasted it for us. He drank the bitter cup down to the dregs. And that reversal, that trading of places, is at the core of the atonement. It's at the core of the condescension. And it's the core of resurrection and exaltation as well, because that's when we get to take his place, a place he's prepared for each of us. I testify of this suffering servant, and I express my gratitude for him, for every wound and every bruise and every chastisement and every stripe. I know he felt that so that I could feel peace and healing. And that's what the atonement has done for me. Because I need that. I'm part of the group mentioned in verse 6. That all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Get more repetition of this role reversal. He's bearing our iniquity. Iniquity we picked up in our wanderings through the wilderness. Iniquity, iniquity we picked up when we strayed from the fold, thinking that there were greener pastures, even though this good shepherd was leading us to green pastures himself. Sheep are notorious wanderers. Picture a, an empty stomach and a hungry mouth connected to a, an ADD brain. And wherever a good bite seems to be, I'm going to go wander in that direction. And so no wonder Jesus speaks of leaving the 90 and 9 to go after the one. Ironically, it's not just one. <laughs> He's the one that doesn't stray. The 90 and 9 are us, and we're all wandering in different directions. All we like sheep have gone astray. Good thing the good shepherd is coming after us, carrying us in his arms, heart to heart. In verse 7, what did it cost him? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. It's amazing what 
literarily Isaiah is doing as he plays with these symbols and metaphors and changes them in, a, in an instant. We were the sheep in verse 6. Jesus is the sheep in 7. And this time, as he's become us, having gone astray, taking upon himself our transgressions and our wickedness, now he's the one oppressed and afflicted as a result. And yet, he's not even bleating when he sees the shearer come. He opens not his mouth. This is submission to the will of God. This is the courage to stare death down and face it unafraid. In verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now there's an irony there in the cut off phrase. Throughout the Old Testament, and the Book of Mormon for that matter, the idea is if you keep the commandments, you will prosper in the land. But if you don't, you will be cut off from it. Well, ironically, Jesus, who did nothing wrong, is being cut off from the land of the living. But even more difficult is the phrase that precedes it. Who shall declare his generation? Scholars have said that's one of the trickiest phrases in this whole part of Isaiah. What does he mean by that? Who shall declare his generation? Some take that and translate it or interpret it to mean who can explain his existence? Who can declare what generated him, his generation? Because not just anyone can, can suffer what this suffering servant is enduring. And how can anyone take upon himself the iniquities of someone else? Explain that. Declare that. Other people see that phrase and think, well, who among his contemporaries, his generation, will be able to declare what he's doing, to be able to see him for who he is and, and explain that to people? Who's going to be able to do that? I mean, Isaiah's trying. Will the people of his generation, the Peters and James and Johns of the world, will they be able to explain to people who this is? Those are all good possibilities. The third possibility is who shall declare his generation? Who can count? Who can number? Who can declare his spiritual offspring? Those who, spiritually speaking, are being generated by, the, by what this suffering servant is accomplishing here? That's the one we lean towards. That's the one Abinadi fully embraced. He'll do it with the help of verse 10. But let's get there by way of verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked. Christ was crucified between thieves. With the rich in his death, he was buried in the tomb of the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Again, the irony of what he went through, despite not deserving any of it. And then verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It didn't... It was not pleasant to the father to bruise the son, but it pleased him that his son was willing to endure it. It was all part of the plan. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's what makes all of this worth it 
to him because he would be able to see his seed. Ah, who shall declare his generation? And Abinadi takes generation, he takes seed, takes them together, trying to answer the priest's question about beautiful feet. This is where these beautiful feet come from. There's a hint of family resemblance in their feet back to his. Minus the wounds, of course. But the way Abinadi says it, this is Mosiah 15, 10 through 12. Now I say unto you, having quoted all of Isaiah 53 to you, who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seeds. Let me repeat that statement. And now what say ye? Who shall be his seed? Behold, I say unto you that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you that these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. For these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died to redeem them from their transgressions. And now, are they not his seed? Oh, Benedict sees it so clearly. He is trying to add people to that number. He's trying to adopt the wicked into the family of faith by crying repentance to them in hopes that they will do everything he just said. Hearken to my words. Believe on the Lord. Look forward to the day of, rem of remission of your sins. Choose him as your father. A father of covenants. It's the covenant relationship. Oh, Alma, go to the waters of Mormon. Baptize believers there. Because that is adopting them in to the family of Christ. It is making them his seed. And it was there on the cross where he suffered for our transgressions, where he made himself, his soul, an offering for sin, that he could see his seed. They are the ones for whom he was dying. And to see them, I wonder if that's what helped him endure it well. To see us, the results of what he was suffering, the consequences of his condescension, and if they will simply hearken and hear and believe and obey, if they'll repent and come unto me, then I'll bring them all the way back. I'll be the shepherd that brings these sheep. I'll be the father who gathers these sons and daughters. Talk about a king carrying them on his shoulders, bearing them by his heart. That's what Jesus would be. And so to endure the agonies of the atonement and the pain of crucifixion, what does he do? He keeps his eyes on us. That is mind-blowing to me. That is soul-expanding to me. That is humbling to me. That he did that for me. That he wasn't focused on his pain, rather he was focused on our worth. And he saw his seed and wanted to declare his generation. The way the writer of Hebrews says it, as we have a race set before us, and we look to the author and finisher of our faith to be able to run it, notice what he says, though. Hebrews 12, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You understand what's being hinted at there? For the joy that was set before him. That's us. Seeing his seed and knowing the joy that would come through our own redemption, he endured the cross and despised its shame. This is as, this is as powerful as it gets, my friends. If the Holy Ghost will simply confirm to you the reality of this and the worth of your soul. This is why Jacob said, I wish that I could convince everyone to view the death of Christ. I just want you to see what he did for you. He probably saw it in vision. He probably saw it with the help of what Isaiah is describing here. No wonder Nephi quotes Isaiah to say that he he might more fully persuade you to believe in the Lord your Redeemer. The pictures that Isaiah is painting here, it's Gethsemane, it's Calvary. And if by seeing that it doesn't motivate us to come unto Christ, then I don't know what will. This is the suffering servant, and he's calling us to come unto him. In verse 11, he says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Well, the demands of justice will be satisfied too. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Interesting phrase. His, by his knowledge, he will justify us. To justify us, to line us back up again, to make what's wrong right. We're not yet holy. We're not yet like him. That's going to require sanctification and our sacrificing our will to reconcile it to his. That's going to take a lifetime of discipleship empowered by the atonement of Christ. But, this, but justified by his knowledge. Now, knowledge, again, that's the yada, that's that intimate knowledge, and he's acquainted with grief. He knows what we go through. And what's amazing to me is what justifies us is the grace of Christ. It's his condescension and atonement. It's his knowledge of what we've been through and his knowledge of what we're made of. Christ gained perfect knowledge through his perfect atonement. And that brought to him perfect empathy. I know what it's like to be weak and to be human, to be fallen flesh. I know what it's like to hit rock bottom. I know what it feels like to endure pain and agony and suffering. I know what it feels like to be, feel guilty of sin. Not because I committed it, but because you did, and I took it upon myself. And I know now what you go through. And I feel nothing but empathy for you. I feel nothing but compassion, fellow suffering, enduring with. I know I'm acquainted intimately so. And as a result of that, I will justify you. I will work with you beyond that until you are sanctified in me. That's why he calls his atonement in Doctrine and Covenants 19, my preparations. Glory be to the Father. I partook of that bitter cup. I finished my preparations under the children of men. I'm prepared to justify you. I'm prepared to sanctify you. Because I know 
what your life is like. It is by his knowledge that we are justified. That is such an important thing to wrap our hearts around. And then he concludes this breathtaking chapter. Verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's us again. What will the Lord, where will he end up? Oh, dividing portions with the great. Dividing spoil with the strong. He's back on his throne. But he's not alone there. He's brought us all back with him. That's why he left the throne to begin with. That's why he condescended. He came down to be with and to be like us. That's what he means by pouring out his soul unto death. When Paul wrote, wrote to the Philippians about Christ's condescension, he uses that same mental image. He talks about Christ with all of his pre-mortal glory coming down to be on our level. But the way it's described, it's kind of hidden in the language of the King James translators. Philippians 2 verse 7 simply says that he made himself of no reputation. That's lowering himself to our level. That's condescension. But the way it's said in Greek... Oh, it, the King James don't do it justice. To make himself of no rep, rep, reputation, the Greek says he emptied himself. How oh, he was filled with premortal glory, divinity. But he emptied himself of that. In other words, he poured it out so he could descend down to our lowly level. He poured out his soul unto death. Well, before that, he poured out his divinity to descend unto humanity. I love the Lord. I glory in my Jesus. I'm grateful for Isaiah 53. It's one of the most powerful passages anywhere in Scripture. It's where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip asked him, do you understand what it's talking about? And the man said, how can I unless someone should teach me? And Philip, beginning at that exact passage, taught the man Jesus. If you can't see Jesus in Isaiah 53, you can't see him anywhere. In fact, this is mind-blowing too. I, Jesus knew the book of Isaiah. He quotes him frequently. By the time you get to this Synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus will quote Isaiah and say pointedly, this day or these, or this, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's me it's talking about. Which lets you know that Jesus, when he read Isaiah, he knew he was the fulfillment of all of those messianic prophecies. Now, duh, of course he did. But think about that when Jesus read Isaiah 53. And imagine what he would have felt Reading this servant song, the greatest of the four, imagine him seeing this as a patriarchal blessing of sorts. It's a fascinating way to read the whole book of Isaiah. Imagine if this were Jesus' patriarchal blessing. In a way it is. And he's reading about things he will go through. Well, imagine him reading 53 and realizing all that talk of stripes and chastisement. All that talk of visage being marred and being a man 
intimately acquainted with sorrow and grief and suffering. And he didn't shy away from any of it because of the joy that was set before him, because he could see his seed. I pray we can make it worth it to him and prove to him that we were worth that sacrifice to live up to being his seed and children that grow up to be like him, that keep the covenant that brought us into connection with him in the first place and live in such a way that we can inherit it's what children do, or are supposed to do, all that he wants to give us from his Father. This is the life that we're supposed to live. It's what we've been called upon to do. And I, for one, give Christ all the glory for making any of it possible. Isaiah doesn't leave us there. He takes us from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 54, and Jesus himself will do the same. If you go back to the third Nephi account, he will quote Isaiah 54 in third Nephi chapter 22. Now Jesus has already quoted some of Isaiah 52 about those beautiful feet. See, what's amazing is when Abinadi is assigned Isaiah 52 to explain, he goes from 52 to 53 because he wants them to understand this is how it's possible. But Jesus, meanwhile, brings up Isaiah 52 and then takes it to Isaiah 54. Ironically, Jesus skips 53, which is done either out of a miraculous amount of humility. I'm actually not going to tell you or remind you of what I went through to make 52 possible or to make 54 possible, since 54 is this kind of sequel and more reassurance, more mercy. It's infinite in this chapter. It's what makes our feet beautiful at all. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't, go, doesn't cover 53, which again may have been humility on his part. It may also have been, ah, it's a little too fresh a memory. And can I not talk about that? I'll bring up the atonement in the 1800s when I explained it to Joseph Smith in section 19. But for now, Isaiah 53 still haunts me. And so now that I'm here with my seed and I see them, can I just reassure you that it was worth it on my part and my mercy will be infinite in your behalf. That's the promise of Isaiah 54. The way he introduces it to us in chapter 22 of 3 Nephi, verse 1. Then shall that which is written come to pass. And he starts quoting Isaiah 54. You see, what Jesus has just done is explain the gathering of Israel and his role in it. He's just explained that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be the sign that it's go time on the part of God. And the real work of gathering is beginning. And it's then that these words will be fulfilled. Take it away, Isaiah, and quote me chapter 54. And Jesus quotes it. 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. This is going back to what we saw last week. This is a repetition of who hath begotten me these. 
You barren woman now have more children than you can handle. So sing about it. Sing in joy and praise. Verse 2 and 3, as a result, remember last time it was, we can't fit in these close quarters anymore. So fine. Verse 2, enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. No wonder the Jews will have to grow into the Gentile inheritance. No wonder that even the desolate cities will have to be re-inhabited. Those ghost towns, we've got to move back in. Why? Because there's no room for us. Breaking forth on the right and on the left. This tent that seemed so empty before, the barren woman, the mother that lost all of her children, who hath begotten me these, where is everyone coming from? The gathering of Israel. And yes, we'll have to extend the tent flaps further. Move over over Barnum and Bailey. We need the big top. We're going to need as much room as possible. And so those cords that hold up the tent, they're going to have to be lengthened. And with that extra weight, the stakes that hold the cords down into the ground will have to be much stronger than they've ever been. That's why that verse in section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants talked not only about beautiful garments and being strengthened, but also about Zion becoming enlarged and expanded. That's, what, that's why the church is growing and why it will continue to do so but also why we need to become stronger in each of our stakes, to be able to hold up the weight of responsibility that God has placed upon us, to be centers of strength and and places of gathering so that people, wherever they may be from, can come into any stake of Zion and be strengthened there themselves. We have to be more welcoming. We have to be more faithful disciples. We have to be stronger saints. And compared to where we come from, that confidence may be hard to come by. But, verse 4, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Now, some of you know what it feels like to have the shame of thy youth. Thinking back, I mean, would you want to repeat junior high or high school? And think about the times you were bullied, or the times that you were embarrassed, times you were forsaken or forgotten. Remember Israel had felt that before the Lord reassured him, you've never been. I've been with you all along. Well, here's the same kind of promise. And all of that shame will be so eclipsed, swallowed up in this sense of union with the Savior that you'll forget the shame of your youth. You won't remember the reproach of your widowhood. He's, again, Isaiah shifting metaphors here, just in trying to, to bring everybody in. Some people have felt shame from youth. Others, no, I was a big man on campus, or I was popular, everything was fine. Okay, well, how about fast forward? What if you were a widow, and you had it all, but then you lost it all? There are those that never had it to begin with, and then those that had it, and then it was taken or lost. The Lord will cover you all. He'll take away your reproach. Earlier in Isaiah, he said that being unmarried might feel like a reproach. Here he's saying that being a widow might feel like a reproach. Back in Genesis, when you meet Rachel, or in the New Testament, where you meet Elizabeth, being childless was felt as a reproach. Anything where it just feels like I don't fit the norm. I am lonely. I'm forgotten. I'm forsaken. 
What a shame. What a reproach. Well, what's the Lord saying? Forget all that. You're not unloved. You're mine. In fact, he says in 5 and 6, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. Take any of those titles. Which one do you want to claim for your partner? Your husband. You're not a widow. I'm still here. You didn't get divorced, right? Show me the bill of thy divorcement. And your husband that will never leave you, he is Lord, he is Redeemer, he is God of the whole earth. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. I know how that's how you felt. That's why I called you to, to marry me. And a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. No one else wanted to marry you. I did. I mean, picture being the wallflower. Picture being that awkward teenager and wondering, why doesn't anyone ever give me the time of day? In fact, not even wondering why, because you, you're afraid you know. And then, oh, the most popular kid on campus knows who you really are and sees you for that and comes, comes and asks you out to prom, okay? I mean, to think about what Isaiah is trying to paint here, this is marriage. And, and we, the bride of Christ, are marrying out of our league. I know what that feels like literally. Well, <laughs> we're doing this spiritually, and Christ is condescending to be our partner. Now, he recognizes that, as we've complained about in the past, there were times we did feel forsaken. And remember, we sold ourselves. He didn't sell us because he doesn't owe anybody. But he does admit this in verse 7 and 8. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. I mean, you drove out the Spirit, right? I couldn't be with you. But that was just a small moment. He'll use the same phrase to Joseph Smith. Your, your adversity will only be but for a small moment. And what will it be replaced by? But with great mercies will I gather thee. And then a rhyme. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee. For a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. If we can just endure that small moment and take advantage of the redemptive turbulence that we suffered in, during that stage, if we can realize what our sins have caused us and caused him and repent of them, then the mercy comes flooding in. It's on its way. Just wait for it. Last week, I hope, you paused our lesson long enough to go listen to Handel's Messiah and feel that note of comfort. If you want to do something similar today, now's a good spot. Because there, that song, or excuse me, that verse has been set to music by an amazing Latter-day Saint composer named Rob Gardner. He actually served his mission at the same time as my wife did and there in France. And he was gifted then, and he's even more gifted now. And he wrote, oh, a masterpiece on the level of Handel's Messiah, if I can, if I can pay him that compliment, called The Lamb of God. And in that oratorio, there is a song called, My Kindness Shall Not Depart From Thee. 
I'll leave a link to it so you can find it easily. There's several different versions of it, a full choir, uh, an indiv individual tenor. But let the Lord and his people sing to you this promise that it's only a small moment and my kindness will come rushing in. Wait for it. Wait for me. Trust in me for that. It's a masterpiece and one that will invite the Spirit to confirm the reality of what Isaiah is saying. It's not too late. There is hope, and that hope is in him. He says in verse 9 and 10, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. And when it feels like the storm has come to stay, it's just a passing one, trust me. This is not 40 days and 40 nights. This is not envelop the earth and wipe everyone off it. No. This is just passing cloud cover, not a worldwide flood. Trust me. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. It's my covenant, and my covenant will hold. It will, last la it will outlast everything else. That's why he brings up mountains and hills being removed, being de departing. That's why he talks about heaven and earth ceasing to be, but not my covenant, not my word, not my promise. Specifically, not my covenant of kindness. Interesting that he's basically saying, my character outlasts even my creation. My creation was for you after all, and so is my kindness. So count on me for all of this. He says in 11 through 13, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. I know that's how you felt. But behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. This is where John in the book of Revelation describes the foundation of the celestial city. It's all made of precious gemstones. Here it is, thy foundations are sapphires. I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. But if you think that's good, that's nothing compared to this next promise. Where you live pales in comparison to with whom you will live. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. For any of you parents, parents of prodigals who are weeping and worrying and waiting for children to come home, that is the ultimate promise. You can keep the gemstones. I don't need any of that. Okay? Uh, I, can, I can live on an asphalt or cement foundation. I don't need any of What I need, what I want more than anything, is for my children to have peace and to be at peace with the Prince of Peace. To, have, to be publishing peace and to have their feet beautiful right alongside everyone else's. They just seem so, those feet seem so far away right now. Well, no wonder the promise before the peace of thy children is that they will be taught. And when it says, thy children shall be taught of the Lord, I wonder about that preposition. Does that mean they're being taught about the Lord? Or that they're being taught by the Lord? Of could suggest either one. And I wonder, that's why I always tell my students, 
that permanent bad news is against my religion. That's why I always try to reassure parents that with children who struggle or stray, the story's not over yet. And they were God's children long before they were yours, and He cares even more about them than you do. Yes, you're teaching them about Jesus. Trust the seeds that you planted. But imagine when, when the sower gets to plant more seeds himself. Imagine when the gardener himself comes to dig and dung. When they are taught of the Lord. And their scales of darkness fall from their eyes and they see him for who he really is. And, and he doesn't rub salt into their wound and he doesn't say, I told you so. He just says, comfort ye my people and, and come home. That, that's a promise I'm banking on and one I trust in wholeheartedly. He says in verse 14 and 15, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear and from terror for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. You see, all these things that we're worried about, oppression, fear, terror, is a huge one in our day, ever since 9-11. And do we lose sleep over that? Do, are we worried and fearful as a result? Because when the Lord says, don't worry about those things, those that gather against you, no, I'm, I, you're out to gather everybody else to me. And anyone who's gathering against you, there's no worries there. I will protect you from all of that. And your righteousness will ensure that that happens. Interesting that righteousness becomes the cure for oppression and fear and terror. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Free from fear. Free from terror. Free from oppression. That's the promise. That in verse 16, Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. Oh, that blacksmith that the Lord has raised to break the chains that, of oppression that we shouldn't be afraid of, to, to hammer out the armor of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the the helmet of salvation. Now, what kind of, of a blacksmith could do that? What kind of a smith is blowing the coals in the fire, just getting things heated up? It's going to take a lot more than just him. But this initial smith that, that's blowing the coals and starting to, to draw, pull out the anvil and grab the hammer and tongs and, and start, start the work, now, to a Latter-day Saint audience, we look at that and think, Ah, Smith, is the Lord dropping hints that obvious? Is he dropping names like that? Now, I, I would hesitate to, to jump to the conclusion that, that clearly. I'm okay with Cyrus being, I mean, the name is right there. Smith? Yeah, that's a really common last name. Well, maybe that's the point. Because if Smith is a, a last name given to those that, that deserved it originally, that there were so many blacksmiths and goldsmiths and silversmiths, people who hammered things out, people who created things out of molten metal. Now, Joseph Smith was a farmer, but he was a smith from the tribe of Smith, <laughs> people who, who create, people who forge, people who are used to furnaces 
of affliction and can make something out of it. Oh, he's, we're, we're all supposed to be smiths. We're all supposed to be working on things and moving the work forward. But there is something powerful just at that beautiful connection that Joseph's last name was Smith. Take it or leave it. His role, though, was Smith. And that one we want to take. He was a Smith that blew the coals. I've shared this quote before, but I think it's worth repeating because it's so powerful. It's G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers. And somehow he got on this, this tangent in his book, uh, Heretics, uh, or was it Orthodoxy? I'll have to look it up. But he, he describes the, the poetry and the majesty of this most ordinary of last names. He said, in the case of Smith, the name is so poetical that it must be an arduous and heroic matter for the man to live up to it. The name of Smith is the name of the one trade that even kings respected. Even the village children feel that in some dim way the Smith is poetic, as the grocer and the cobbler are not poetic. When they feast on the dancing sparks and deafening blows in the cavern of that creative violence. The brute repose of nature the passionate cunning of man, the strongest of earthly metals, the weirdest of earthly elements, the unconquerable iron subdued by its own conqueror, the wheel and the plowshare, the sword and the steam hammer, the arraign of armies and the whole legend of arms, all these things are written, briefly indeed, but quite legibly, on the visiting card of Mr. Smith. This sacred name of Smith, this name made of iron and flame. From the darkest dawn of history, this clan has gone forth to battle. Its trophies are on every hand. Its name is everywhere. It is older than the nations. And its sign is the hammer of Thor. <laughs> oh, thank you, Chesterton. Man, it makes me want to switch out from Halverson to Smith. Well, I can do that without changing my last name. It's going back to where the name comes from, and it's engaging in the work itself. So grab that hammer. Hold those tongs. <laughs> Go wield the hammer of Thor and take on a role that harnesses iron and flame. That's going on a mission. That's serving in the temple. That's magnifying a calling. That's repenting of your sins. That's blowing on the coals and letting the fire come. Verse 17, one more image that a blacksmith would be helpful for. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So don't let it go to your head. <laughs> okay, it's not us. It is him. But because of him and all that he's done for us, no weapon formed against us can prosper. Certainly didn't prosper against him. He overcame them all, and we're on his side. He's on ours. So that smith blowing the coals, yes, would you forge me a sword of the Spirit and the Word of God? Would you hammer out a, a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation? Can my feet be shod, these beautiful feet on the mountains, can they be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Oh, yes, they can. And in the face of all opposition, there is that glorious trust. I know which side will win. 
President Packer at one point was being persecuted because of a stand he took to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And President Ezra Taft Benson came to see him and reassure him and encourage him and opened his wallet and pulled out a little note that he kept there. And on that note was that verse of scripture. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. President Benson sometimes attracted some opposition too. He knew what it felt like. And he wanted to make sure that Elder Packer knew that they were both on the Lord's side. And that's the right place to be. Well, chapter 54 is where the Savior ends. And there's no more beyond that that we see in the Book of Mormon. I'm grateful, though, that we can go back to the Old Testament and let Isaiah continue to prophesy. Because chapter 55 is another masterpiece. This one is famous, most famous perhaps, for its phrase about God's ways being higher than our ways. And they are. We'll get to that verse. But notice how he gets us there. It's been in the context of all of this reassurance of mercy, the suffering servant, what he would go through so that we could be healed and cleansed. That's, that's a higher way. People can change. Huh. Well, notice what he says. 55.1. Ho. So let me get your attention. Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye. Buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Now, this is an odd ad campaign. The ad campaigns are all about come buy something. Okay? Come bring us your money. But this one, he doesn't want any money. Well, oh, so it's like a gift then? Well, not exactly. I, mean, I guess you could call it that if it's, well, it's free, right? Well, in a manner of speaking. Well, you just said it's without money, without price. Okay, but that does mean it's priceless. It's just not going to be gained with money. I don't understand what you're saying. See, here's the confusion. Without money, without price sure makes it sound like a free gift. But the word buy, he mentions twice. Nope, come and buy it. Buy the wine, buy the milk. Well, what does it cost? How much money do you need? None. So you're giving it. No, I want you to buy it. Ah, you're confusing me. You see, money was just a way to make trade impersonal. Money, before money, it was I'll do this for you and you do that for me. Or I'll give you this and you give me that. But it eventually got complicated, or I don't, I don't have anything, uh, or you don't have anything I want, but they do. And so let's make kind of this a three-way, and then it go, go beyond until you have this global economy where we can do so many things impersonally. And we're just going to agree upon some, how oh, a bead, or a shell, or a piece of paper, or a piece of metal, and we'll agree upon its value, and then we'll connect things to it, and then pretty soon it becomes all important. I just want the money. I can do anything with it. Whereas in the old days, again, it was more relational than transactional. And that's what the Lord wants when it comes to covenants. It's not transactions we're making with him. Well, how many good things do I have to do for you to offset the bad things I've done? And then am I, am I paying you back enough? And what's my rate of exchange? No, no, we're not making transactions with the Lord. No money, no price. But I do want to make relationships with the Lord. So yes, come and buy. Let's come and talk together. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And we'll decide on a value that we can both agree on and then put our hands together and shake on it. And that's a real purchase. 
with a relationship and our names behind it. No money needed. That's what covenant's all about. And when, when you can finally come to agree with the Lord on the worth of your soul, it's mind-blowing. It's worth His life in exchange. And then definitely worth our life in exchange in terms of discipleship. Yes, I, I will buy that wine and milk that is priceless. In verse 2, he then gives you the alternative, what we end up doing most of the time. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. There's that feast of fat things we saw earlier in Isaiah. Unfortunately, that's not the feast we typically go to. Instead, we, tend our, we take our money, we spend our money, better verb, we waste our money on things that do not satisfy. We're hungry, but we're spending, food on, we're spending money on food that isn't bread. Uh, I remember conference talks years ago that described things as theological Twinkies and fried froth. And that's what the world is offering. Empty calories, really. And yet, oh, but it's, everyone's eating it, and it sure tastes good. Okay. It's going to leave you empty when all is said and done, though. Why do we waste so much of our time and our energy, our efforts, our focus, our money, you name it, toward things that don't have lasting value? Okay? Uh, we need to change our, our focal point. And to do so, verse 3 and 4, incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's not transactional. This is relational. Even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander of the people. And it's not King David. Rather, it's the son of David that is that leader, that commander, that witness. His mercies are sure. They're everlasting. So he says in verse 5, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knewest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel. For he hath glorified thee. I mean, even strangers will come running. People you didn't know and that they didn't know you or your God. But once they come to know your God, oh, nothing can keep them away. Then The nations will flow uphill to the mountain of the Lord. In verse 6, Seek ye the Lord. While he may be found, call ye upon him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now, those two verses, six and seven, seven is actually a little softer on the ear than six was because seven speaks of mercy. In fact, it speaks of abundant pardon. There doesn't seem to be any kind of limit to it. Whereas the first part, verse 6, does suggest a limit, namely a time limit. Because it says to come and seek God while he can still be found. Call him while he's still near. Now, that's, those two verses are a good contrary to proof. Because on the one hand, you need to know that God's mercy is eternal. And as often as my people repent, I will forgive them, he says. But at the same time, the contrary, you have to know that this is the time and this is the life to prepare to meet God. 
And so take advantage of the time that you have and do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. But if it's always going to be there, then can I just do it tomorrow? Well, yes and no. What do you mean yes and no? I'm proving contraries, okay? When it's yes and no, then it's proving contraries. We, you see, we can't presume upon his grace. That's just saying, oh, he abundantly pardoned, that's fine. But neither can we think that his hand is too short to redeem us. Oh, no. He will abundantly pardon. Do whichever will make you repent. If you need a deadline to repent now, then do it while he may be found. And no guarantee that tomorrow will give you another chance to do it. If, on the other hand, your problem isn't too cold, it's too hot, and it's too late for me, and I can't do it, and my day has passed, and, it, and he can't be found, then please rest assured that God will abundantly pardon. Then he says in verse 8 and 9, and that's why I love the first word of this famous verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, a couple of things here. The first part, he just said, hey, you know what? Sometimes we just think differently. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. But then he clarifies, because it's one thing to go, you know, God, I, I, you said in Isaiah that we don't always see eye to eye. So I'm going to kind of go my way on this one, and you can go yours. And we just have to agree to disagree, because, hey, we think differently. That's fine. Come now. <laughs> so that's why he says in his rhyme, he intensifies things. Okay, it's not just that my thoughts are different than yours. They're better than yours. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In fact, not just by a couple of feet. We're talking heaven versus earth. Like never the twain shall meet. Uh, that no matter how high your earthly thoughts are, they still don't quite hit heaven. So yeah, I see things from a different angle. A heavenly one. So no wonder our ways aren't quite the same. Now that's good to know when you, do, when you disagree with God. Okay, If you're not sure which way to lean, yeah, lean in His direction. It's for your best interest. But that's a general principle that applies across the board. The specific principle that elicited this comment from Isaiah was what he just said in 6 and 7. I will abundantly pardon Really? But we totally deserve our punishment. I know. But my thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. But nobody can be that merciful. You have any idea how many times I've succumbed to the same temptation and fallen to the same sin? I'm, you're probably sick of me by now. Oh, I can see why you would be. This is back to the experience I had when I read the book of, Judge, of Judges in one sitting. And just got so uh, dizzy from the pride cycle that I was frustrated with God. And why do you keep forgiving them? And then the Spirit answered really quick, because I do the same for you. Oh, yeah, yikes, you do. But the fact that I was frustrated that you're like that lets you know where my thoughts are. That my thoughts are on a worldly lower level and it's, I get frustrated or I get impatient or, well, you made your bed, now lie in it. And you're getting what you deserve. Yes, God is just. But he's more merciful than you can imagine. He's got heaven levels of mercy, not earth levels. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, my merciful ways.
higher than yours. The context of that passage means everything to me. He forgives us because he doesn't think the way we think. Then he says in verse 10 and 11, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, Isaiah has just shifted gears from the mercy of God to the revelations of God. His word, so shall my word be. But what's the analogy he's drawing? It's amazing that uh, uh, Isaiah knows the water cycle. And he's talking about precipitation. And water comes down, snow falls from heaven. And it doesn't just return thither without doing something first. No, no, no. It waters the earth and it brings forth It helps plants bud and blossom. It brings seed to the sower, bread to the eater. It provides life for us. Wow. And then it does it again and again and again. Now, in the same way that there is a water cycle, I guess there's a word cycle. And God sends his word down to us and not for no reason. He does not intend for it just to come back to him void There's nothing more frustrating than getting a return to sender letter that you sent to someone else that you really wanted them to receive. And now it's back and it never got opened? Seriously? Well, imagine God receiving return to sender letters. Undeliverable address. Uh, Mailbox full because they never answer anything from you in the past. No, when God sends word, he wants it to bring forth life. He wants it to bud and blossom. And if we'll let it, if we'll let that seed germinate in good soil, we'll have trees of life springing up within us unto everlasting life. That's what he's hoping for. And then what will we do with that word? We'll give it back. We'll raise our praise to the Lord. We'll pray. We'll, sh- we'll share with others. And the water will keep on flowing, keep on cycling. The word of God will accomplish its saving work. And then, verse 12 and 13, Ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills, that's always temple talk, shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Oh, all of creation rejoicing right alongside you. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What is that name? Oh, the God of the garden. What is that sign that we can all come back into Eden and eat of the fruit of the tree of life? Because the curse has been conquered. It's been reversed. It's no longer thorns and briars. That's what Isaiah said. Now it's firs and myrtles. Creation, fallen creation, has now been picked back up again. And as the earth receives its paradisical glory, thanks to the coming of her king, no wonder the trees of the field are clapping their hands. The mountains and hills are singing out. Her creator has come. And now there's no fallen world anymore.
Myrtles and furs, there's an everlasting sign for you, never to be cut off. But what about people who don't feel like that? Who don't feel that those blessings are for them? Who feel like, no, I have been cut off and will stay that way. I'm living among the briars and the thorns. No furs or myrtles in sight. That's where Isaiah 56 comes in. Because in the midst of all this reassurance, he wants to make sure that, I mean, if the mountains and the hills are singing, then certainly those people whose feet are upon them should be singing along too. And I don't want anyone to feel cut off or left out from that. This is an all-encompassing embrace. Remember, the, my arms are stretched out and no one's beyond my redeeming reach. So here's my message to you. And Isaiah 56 is one of the most beautiful chapters you could ask for, for the all-inclusivity of the covenant. Remember, it was exclusive at first when God called Abraham, just you, you and your seed. But in thee and in thy seed, exclusivity, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Radical inclusivity. It's just a matter of sharing the word, publishing peace. And once it gets to them, you have to reassure them that they're not second-class citizens. They're fellow citizens with the saints. No more strangers or foreigners. Paul has a field day with this because it's speaking his language. It is his message to the Gentiles. Well, Isaiah was teaching the same thing centuries before. Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. So don't overswing the pendulum based on chapter 55. That Wait, he's abundantly pardoned. His mercy is higher than our mercy ever could be. Yes, but so is his justice. So lay hold on justice. Do the right thing. Keep the commandments. Okay, But don't overswing the pendulum in that, in that side either. We're walking uh, the tightrope, the balance beam, and so prove the contraries and make sure you're, you're moving forward. You're repenting because you know you can, mercy. You're repenting because you know you must, justice. Well, how do we balance this? Especially to those who feel cut off. Verse 3. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now for this verse and the verses that follow, to make sense, we have to first understand what a stranger is and what a eunuch is. And then the rest will will fall into place. A stranger to an Israelite is a non-Israelite, a foreigner. Okay, And take your pick. Is it the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians? I hope not. There are oppressors. Is it the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites? Uh, They're kind of distant relatives, but definitely not the house of Israel. And there were some places earlier in the Old Testament that talked about don't even mix and mingle with them. Cut them off from the congregation. They're not you. And so sometimes this sense of tribalism that we associate with ancient Israel or this sense of exclusivity we sometimes associate with the modern church. It's us. And everyone else is a non-member. Oh, perish the thought. Shudder. Uh, or what does a Jew call anyone that's not a Jew? A Gentile. Hmm, come to think of it. What does a Latter-day Saint call anybody who's not a Latter-day Saint? A Gentile. Or a non-member. Thankfully, we're trying to get away from that kind of language. And Isaiah is definitely trying to get away from this kind of language. 
But that's what a stranger is to an Israelite. And then a eunuch is someone, this is, this is rough, but a eunuch is someone typically that is assigned to oh, guard the king's harem. But to make sure that they don't become a danger to the harem that they're supposed to guard, usually it would be a castrated male or a male that is not going to be in any danger of, of having problems with the king's wives. Okay? If you need more detail than that, go look up what a eunuch is. But in Israel, both strangers and eunuchs were looked down upon. The, the strangers, because you're not a house of Israel. You're not one of us. You're not the chosen people. When God called for a peculiar treasure, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that wasn't you. No, he picked Abraham and his posterity. That's us. By the time you get to the New Testament, there is such a sense of superiority there that Jesus is going to go around popping bubbles left and right to let non-members in. Uh, but eunuchs also look down upon because what's the key of the Abrahamic covenant? It's posterity. Seed like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. No reproach, right? That's what Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel went through such hard things because they couldn't have children until they came. Now, one of the worst things, one of the last things you'd want to be in Israel is a eunuch. In fact, notice what their complaint is. The stranger says, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. I'll never fit in because my lineage is wrong. And what does the eunuch say? I'm a dry tree. I'm a tree that will never bring forth additional life. No, no new branches, no fruit forthcoming. I'm stuck. And my line will end with me. Now, what I'm trying to explain here, so that the rest of these verses come to life for us, is if you want to feel like you're part of something that you don't fit in with, then imagine being a stranger in Israel or a eunuch among a people that is so focused on posterity that they're defined by it. I've heard some people say, it's hard to be a single in a family church. Well, now you know a little what it would have been like to be a eunuch in Israel. I've heard some say, it's hard to be in the LGBT community when you're part of a straight church. Well, then you know a little what it feels like to be a eunuch or a stranger in Israel. <clears throat> in fact, when I talk with students and friends and loved ones that are in the LGBTQIA plus community, and I say all those letters because I have friends and family members that line up with every single one, and I love them. I've had students that I can put under every single letter of that acronym, and I know God loves them. And this is the passage I always bring them to. I take them to Isaiah 56. In fact, I had one student come in to talk about LGBT issues in the church. And he said, I'm an ally. I have so many friends in the LGBT community, and I just don't know what to tell them. I know the gospel's true. I know the law of chastity is the best way to live. And I know the plan of salvation, and I know I, try, I believe in a loving God that I trust. I just don't know what to say to my friends as they wonder, what will my life be like if I live the gospel? 
if I sacrifice my sexuality on the altar of my spirituality, instead of doing what so many other people do and sacrifice their spirituality on the altar of their sexuality. Either way, that is a gut-wrenching decision that many of us don't have to make to the same degree. We all have to, to sacrifice at least part of our sexuality on the altar of our spirituality, or the sacrifice will go in reverse. But that is still very different from the level of sacrifice being asked of our LGBT brothers and sisters. So what do we say? I shared Isaiah 56 with this good brother, and then he shared it with his friends. And he came back to report and he said, thank you so much for that verse. I shared it with one of my friends who's trying to live the gospel, uh, a gay Latter-day Saint trying to live a chaste, celibate life and struggling with what will my future look like. And he said, when I shared that scripture with him, my friend just broke down saying, I have so many well-meaning friends in the church that reassure me or do their best to. And give me words like, it's all going to work out and it's going to be okay and God has you covered and just hold on and be faithful and trust. And I've always just wondered, is that just them being nice? Is that them just trying to give me words of encouragement and reassurance but they don't have any theological leg to stand on? This student of mine said, when I shared with him Isaiah 56, my friend said, you're the first person that's ever had a scripture to back up their kindness. A scripture to be able to reassure me that God knows what I'm trying to do and that God will bless me and he's the one making the promise. So here's what we see in Isaiah 56 and not just to people in the LGBTQIA plus community but if you're a single, if you're divorced, if you're part of a blended family, if you're struggling with addictions, if you're an early returned missionary, if you deal with mental illness or physical handicap, anyone that feels like they don't fit the mold. And in some ways, that's all of us, because the mold is Christ. And he's trying to fashion us to fit. But this passage is for you. Verse 4 and 5, for those who feel like dry trees, or utterly separated, or I'll never fit in. Thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs, that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. So notice what kind of eunuch you are. You're not trying to change the rules. You're not trying to, to alter Israel to fit you. No, I don't want everyone else to be a eunuch. I'm just trying, to, as a eunuch, to fit in. And how do I do that? I'm going to keep the, the Sabbath like everybody else. I'm going to choose godly things like everybody else is trying to do. I'm going to take hold of the covenant because it's the only covenant that will hold and the only one that will hold on to me. And what does God say to those people who are observing their covenants by sacrifice? Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls. So this is a temple text. Outside the temple, there will not be fairness in this life. Outside the temple, it can't even be fair in the next. It's the temple that will make every wrong thing right, that will make injustices just. It's the temple that will fix things. Okay, It's where heaven and earth meet. So, 
in my house, within my walls, what will God give those who feel cut off and left out? A place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That was the fear of the eunuch. My name will be cut off in Israel. And you remember how the Israelites did all kinds of things to make sure that that wouldn't happen? That's why, even from generation numero uno, the very first one, they thought outside the box and practiced plural marriage so that Abraham could have seed at all. And then the blessing came to, to Sarah after that kind of sacrifice. That's why the law of levirate marriage existed, which is incredibly strange by modern sensibilities. To marry the in-law so that they can, their child will belong to the departed brother? How does that? Oh, that way the, the brother who's already passed on to the next life, his name has not been cut off. It can still be everlasting because he'll have posterity. He'll have his part in the Abrahamic covenant. So they're thinking outside the box on all kinds of things. We've got to make sure everyone has a chance. Well, now it's God thinking outside the box. <laughs> but what he's, what he's thinking into is the temple. And somehow in the temple, through the temple, in my house, within my walls, I'll give you something better so that you're not never cut off. You'll have an everlasting name. In fact, it'll be mine. How does that work? Now, stay here with me just a minute longer. Because that phrase, a place and a name, that will be better than sons and daughters. First of all, it's kind of vague. But it's, there is a, a superlative there. It will be better. What you thought you were missing out on in life were sons and daughters because you're a eunuch and can't have any. You cannot have children of your own. I'll give you something better than that. Now, you can picture the rest of Israel going, wait, 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 what's better than that? This is like cream of the crop, top of the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, I know. Don't worry. I'm not, by putting them, by saying it's better for them, I'm not saying this is worse for you. Calm down, okay? But the people who feel like they can never have what everybody else has. We talk, call it a compensatory blessing. And it will more than compensate for what you felt like you missed out on in mortality. Well, tell me what it is. And to my friends in the LGBT community, that's a question that I can't answer. What do you mean it will be better? What is God giving me that will more than make up for what I'm self-sacrificing throughout my life? I don't know. And it seems that the Lord and Isaiah want to keep it vague so that it remains relational instead of transactional. And I don't know, what, I, I, I know in a part what it's costing me here. I don't know what the return on my investment will be next that makes this sacrifice an, an investment instead. No sacrifice at all. I guess I just have to trust God. Uh-huh. That's what this all boils down to. A radical amount of trust in a God who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent. That he's there and he knows what's going to be best for you. And he has the power to make it happen. And it's going to be the best thing for everyone involved. You just have to trust the God that says that eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard. Neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for those that love him. 
Oh, that verse in 1 Corinthians 2 is one of my favorites because it pushes me to just trust in the who when I don't know the what. It's going to be better than I can imagine. So whatever this gift is, I'll just leave it in the Lord's hands. It's going to be glorious, better than I can possibly imagine. But how is it described here? It will be a place and a name. They're in my house, within my walls, and it's going to blow you away. What is that place? What is that name? He's hinting at something here. Oh, and, and once you see it, it's absolutely breathtaking. Place can also be translated. The original Hebrew here is Yad, the Shem. Yad is place, the, and Shem name. So Yad, the Shem, a place and a name. Now, that's not the only way you can translate that, because the word Yad also means hand. So in my house, within my walls, I'm going to give you a hand and a name. Now, I can understand why the King James translator would shift that to place and a name, because he's going to give you a hand and a name. What on earth could that mean? Well, we actually have some thoughts about that. Uh, when you think of sacred places and hands that God gives you and names that God gives you to reassure you, that you are part of the covenant and the glories of the celestial kingdom will far surpass anything you feel like you're missing out on in this life? Oh, just trust the covenant as God is endowing you with power from on high. And you don't have to make any specific promises beyond that. I just have seen and sensed the glory of thy kingdom. I got to enter into it here in thy holy house. I'll take your hand and your name, and that's all I'll need. Now, hold on to that, and then add this. Throughout the world, there are Holocaust museums, uh, because it was a global tragedy. And the House of Israel has been globally dispersed. The diaspora brings in all nations. That's why the scattering was that far. That's why the gathering will have to be from that far. And they're all amazing. Uh, but you'd assume that Israel, the nation of Israel, would have a pretty incredible Holocaust museum. And sure enough, it, it, has, it has one that still haunts me as far as my memories of going there 25 years ago. The way they tried to portray the loss that, that the Jewish people went through at the hands of merciless persecutors, that is a stain on on humanity itself. But what did they name their Holocaust Museum? The Holocaust Museum outside Jerusalem is called Yad Vashem. Let's let that sink into your soul. These Jews who know the book of Isaiah like the back of their hand, what can we possibly do to memorialize people who can't have a gravestone because there's nothing remaining of them. What will we do for six million Jews, many of whom we don't even know their names? Well, we will trust that the God of Israel does and that we can do nothing for them, but that God will do everything for them and that he, within his walls and in his house, there will yet be a place and a name where even those cut off in mortality by the Nazis will not be cut off eternally. And God will somehow compensate for even them they will have a Yad Vashem.
to think about what happens within the temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where people of all nations will have their names remembered and actually uttered again, perhaps for the first time in centuries, where a proxy is taking their place, this substitutionary atonement, this role reversal, and I'll take your place in that realm of the forgotten so that you can be remembered here and have a name given and a place reserved so that you will never be cut off. This is as beautiful a passage of Scripture as you can ask for. And if you're asking for heavenly reassurance that God remembers you even though you don't fit the mold, this is for you. In fact, he rhymes the whole idea over again, just in case you missed it. And if this first one was to reassure the eunuchs, the second one is to reassure the strangers. So he says in verse 6, Also the sons of the stranger... You felt so cut off and forgotten and I'll never fit in. I'm a non-member, but I want to be a member. That's what he says in the next line, that join themselves to the Lord. These are converts. To serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. He's setting this one up just the way he set up the eunuchs in the, in the verses before. You're doing what's right against the odds. You're a convert to the church, but you, are, you have embraced the gospel as if you had been born under the covenant. And as far as God is concerned, he sees no difference. You're doing all that you can to live this life. And as a result, verse 7, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. This is a temple text again. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. And the promise to them, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Again, in a covenant context, in temple surroundings, you see these strangers coming to the house of the Lord. No, 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 no. There's a court of the Gentiles. I mean, they can come to Temple Square maybe, but no further than that. Certainly not to the court of the Israelites. Certainly not to where the priests would offer sacrifice. Are you kidding me? You're going to defile the place. Oh no. They're as clean as you are. I honestly wonder if what he's hinting at is these non-members, these strangers, bringing sacrifice, or are they actually offering them? Hard to tell. Their, their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted upon mine altar. I mean, that would... That would the, the Levites are fainting left and right, even the thought of this. No, 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 not even all Israelites can do that. Only we Levites can. Well, just wait. <laughs> wait. And God is so much more inclusive than you could possibly imagine. Wait to watch what Jesus does in the New Testament, especially in the book of Luke. Wait to see what God tells Peter do, to do in the book of Acts. Wait till you see what Paul will do in bringing the message to the Gentiles. Wait till you see what God will reveal in 1978 to people of every race and color and kindred. Just wait to see what he will do as the gospel continues to roll forth and messengers with beautiful feet cover the earth so that the house of God can be a place of prayer for all people.
all the families of the earth to be blessed. And he's still not done. Verse 8, The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. This is an ever-expanding circle. As the gathering expands, accelerates, it's picking up speed and it's going further and further. The four corners of the earth, those that are gathered, then become gatherers of others. And they go on and gather and, and it spreads on and on and on. This is the work of the Lord and there's no end to it. This, do you understand why I would want to share this to my friends that feel like they don't fit in? to reassure every eunuch and every stranger that you're not second-class citizens at all. And somehow, I don't, I don't know the details, but God does, your life will end up better than you could possibly imagine. If you're in those circumstances, I would encourage you to turn to the Lord yourself and get a personal confirmation that as you keep the covenant, God will keep his covenant with you. And though I can't tell you the specifics of what your mortal life will look like, I can rest assured in the abundant mercy and unimaginable blessings of a God who loves you more than you could possibly know. Please hold on to that. And in times when the sacrifice seems too great, rush back to Isaiah 56 and let the Spirit reconfirm these words. Now, there's a piece of me that wishes Isaiah 56 ended there, but it doesn't. And the last few verses are a complete shift of tone. These, this passage has been breathing mercy in every, in every sentence, and then it completely shifts back to justice and, and divine discontent and frustration over the wicked people of Israel. It's like, no wonder we need the eunuchs and the, the strangers to come in because the people that are already here don't deserve to be. Uh, historically speaking, many be believe that the reign of Hezekiah has come and gone, and now the reign of Manasseh has, become, and it's an, uh, has begun, and it's a nightmare. Manasseh is as wicked as his father was righteous, and now Isaiah has to turn to justice and con condemnation and cries of repentance. God does here. So you look in Isaiah 56, verse 9 through 11. No more message of mercy. Now it's a warning of woe. And he says, All ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. And what will you feast upon? His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. I warned you there'd be a shift of tone. No more gentle Jesus. This is turning the tables over at the temple. And he's crying repentance to people in Israel that should know better. These are watchmen that are blind. What good is a watchman on the tower who cannot see the enemy coming? What good is a watchdog that can't bark and alert the people he's supposed to be protecting that an enemy is on its way? So that's where you see the blind watchman and the dumb dogs. These are people so ignorant they don't know the way of the Lord and therefore they're not living it themselves and certainly not 
counseling other people to live it. The dogs, they're not even just dumb and not barking, but they're greedy. And maybe that's why they're not barking, because their mouths are full as they're just trying to feed themselves. Sure enough, you people that are looking to your own way and seeking to satisfy your own lusts, get your own gain. These are shepherds that do not understand what the good shepherd really expects of them. Things are falling apart in the house of Israel. And no wonder Isaiah has already been prophesying of the coming of Babylon. It's still 100 years away, but they're already starting to let Babylonian influences, spiritually speaking, in. It's going to spell their disaster. And he's letting them know from ahead of time. Verse 12, Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine. We will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. That's a far cry from the buying of wine and milk without money and without price. Now it's, uh, we don't even care about the cost. We'll never have to pay it. It's fine. Tomorrow will be just like today, so eat, drink, and be merry. In fact, tomorrow will probably even be better today than today. So just keep the feast flowing. Oh, do you have any idea that what the consequences of those sins will be? Babylon is waiting in the wings. So the warning continues in our last chapter of this week, chapter 57. And it too is kind of a, a hard way to end our lesson. But it's one we have to wrestle with. If the carrot of God's mercy isn't attracting us, then perhaps the stick of divine punishment will motivate us to move in God's direction. Either way, we need to come unto him. He says in verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 57, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. This passage is a little confusing. But what he's describing there is, okay, if the righteous perish and nobody seems to care, okay, the merciful are taken away, nobody considers it, Uh, That should tell you something's going wrong in society, too. No one's mourning over the loss of the righteous. It's like, good riddance. We don't want you. Uh, You make us feel guilty about the way we're living. But then again, for those righteous, what a merciful reprieve their death has granted them. You don't have to live with them, but they don't have to live with you anymore. And these righteous, they, they are taken away from the evil to come. That's actually something Joseph Smith taught, again, bereaved mothers in his day, that perhaps these children that died were being spared a world that was too wicked for them. They were just too, too pure, too good to have to live long in a world that would, that would do them damage. It's an interesting contrary life of we're supposed to love life enough to preserve it. Suicide's never the answer. But also not love it so much that we were unwilling to let it go when it's our time. Uh, To get to the point where we can rejoice for those who have passed on because they passed. They passed the test, and their test is over, and they're no longer fighting against a wicked world that is constantly trying to drag them down. The righteous are taken away from the evil to come. 
And for those that were spared the Babylonian conquest, you didn't have to be here to see the, your beloved temple destroyed. You didn't have to be here to, to even see if you would have survived the Babylonian onslaught. Oh, massive casualties. And those that did survive being dragged back to Babylon, Babylon to be Babylonified. We'll see that when we get to Ezekiel and Daniel. Oh no, you were spared. Be grateful. But to you who are left behind, verse 3, draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Strong language. And there's going to be more of it in this chapter. Uh, Isaiah doesn't pull any punches here. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Oh, yikes. He's describing uh, human sacrifice to pagan gods. He's describing all kinds of idolatry, sorcery, adultery, whether it's uh, human infidelity or divine infidelity. Either way, you're not being faithful to those that are trying to be faithful to you. I mean, Israel is falling apart spiritually, just as Isaiah warned them against. Have they presumed upon grace, thinking that, oh, we're God's people, we'll be fine. Oh, no, then you overswung that pendulum. So let me right the wrong and get you back on the side of justice by calling you out for this. But it's not working yet. They, they, there's no shame on their part. I mean, they're sticking their tongue out at God. Like, neener, neener. We'll never pay the piper. In verse 6 and 7, more of their abominations. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them thou hast poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. These are false sacrifices. My false priests to false gods. It's falsehood all the way down. It is counterfeit religion. Not not covenant with Christ. In verse 8 and 9, it gets even more graphic. Behind the doors also, and the posts, hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and it's debased thyself even unto hell. Now that sounds graphic enough, but the King James translators softened their language as much as they could. You look at other translations, you understand what Isaiah is really hinting at, and he's describing a woman who is cheating on her husband and flaunting it in his face. We'll see that when we get to Hosea. But here, as Isaiah is trying to describe it graphically, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in this passage. And it's what they're doing as they're cheating on their God. You remember all the language we saw earlier, the symbolism Isaiah was using about God as the husband and Israel as the wife? And you were, no one wanted to ask you out to prom. I did. No one wanted to marry you. I gave up everything to bring you into my eternal embrace. I refused to divorce you, even though you kept cheating on me. And now you keep doing it, and 
What am I supposed to do? Can we go to marriage therapy? Can we get some counseling? Can, will you just come home and be as true to me as I have been to you? This is heartbreaking when you think about what happens with real broken covenants when, it, when adultery happens in, in, in life. Oh, there's fallout. And to see what's happening with this, Isaiah is trying to help them see exactly what they're doing with a metaphor that hopefully would hit them hard. Would it? We'll see. Verse 10, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet sayest thou not there is no hope. Now that doesn't make any sense. The New International Version helps a little. You wearied yourselves by such going about, but you would not say it is hopeless. The idea there is you, you keep going and going and going in your wicked ways, even though they're destroying you. Why don't you get tired of it? Why don't you get sick and tired of being so sick and tired of your sins? Uh, but you think, oh no, the road back would be much longer. And there's no hope in, in traveling it anyway. So there when it says there is no hope, it's there's no hope in repenting. There's no hope in changing. So I might as well just stay and keep doing what I'm doing. No. He goes on, Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. You're just holding on to this and no godly sorrow at all. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? Certainly not me, only those false gods. You feared them more than me. That thou hast lied and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? Oh, maybe during that but a moment when you felt forsaken, as you were suffering the consequences of your own sin. Did you really think I'd left you forever? And then, well, I guess I'm not married anymore. He divorced me, and so now I'm going to find somebody else. And now you're going to these pagan altars and false gods and committing adultery against me with them? You fear them more than me? And now you're blaming me for your departure? What? No. No, that's not the husband that I am. So he says in verse 12, I will declare thy righteousness. Now, this is Isaiah speaking. I'm sure he put thy righteousness in quotes. Okay, He's saying this very sarcastically. Your so-called righteousness. I'll declare it to you. And thy works, for they shall not profit thee. I need you to understand there's no value from what you're doing, this lifestyle that you've embraced. When thou criest, well, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. That's what you'll discover about these new gods of yours. They'll never come through for you when you need them. We saw that so much in last week's material. But here's the flip side. He that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. See, God is still holding out hope for a righteous remnant. If you'll just trust me and come unto me, I'll make, I'll make it possible. All these obstacles that were in your way, I'll get rid of every stumbling block. You can't climb the heights, then I'll cast it up. I'll build a, a, a ramp. It's this highway to help you flow uphill and come home. He's still holding out these arms of mercy. 
despite everything that adulterous Israel has done against him. And here's why, verse 15 and 16. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. My ways are higher than your ways. They're holier than your ways too. With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. Yes, I am high and holy, but I will condescend in compassion. Yes, my ways of holiness are far higher than your ways of unholiness, but my ways of mercy are higher than you could possibly imagine as well. So just come, just change, just repent, and I will revive you. If you'll take that heart that you've set on these false, these false loves and break it, if you'll take this spirit and make it contrite and offer those to me by way of sacrifice, then I'll accept them. I will revive you. I do have the tongue of the learned after all that I can revive the weary, and my message of mercy hopefully will do just that. Granted, verse 17, for the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and he was wroth, and he went on frowardly, or crookedly, in the way of his heart. So of course my justice had to respond. But I have seen his ways, and will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him, and to his mourners. So there's my mercy as well. Over and over, back and forth, the pendulum swinging, trying to find balance. What will help you? Justice, mercy, a perfect balance of the two? For a little season, you may have to suffer for your sins. But if that redemptive turbulence is redemptive, my mercy will come rushing in. I will restore comfort to you. Verse 19 to 21, we end. I create the fruit of the lips. And here's what they say. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. I will heal him. That's publishing peace. That's the good tidings of great joy. If you won't listen then I have a message for you as well. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, that it cannot rest. No matter how many times I say peace, peace, it cannot rest. Its waters are cast up mire and dirt. You know, picture it churning. And so he says in conclusion, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's the problem. And it's not my fault. Peace is all I've ever wanted to give to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. That's what the Lord would say. And here he is, Jehovah himself, this suffering servant, not wanting his people to have to suffer themselves. I'm the prince of peace. I publish peace. Look at my beautiful feet upon these mountains. 
Look at those that I have called and commissioned to come and call you into the covenant yourself. Why won't you listen? Why won't you change? Your life is a stormy sea. And you know it. You see the mire. You feel the dirt within. And I'm trying to draw it out of you. I remember as a young father being so frustrated when my children wouldn't just fall asleep. Because for me, falling asleep was really, really easy. I could probably do it at a red light if you gave me a chance. Uh, I, I'm out before I hit the pillow. But my wife would always just say, they're, they're, the problem is they're overtired. They're just too tired to fall asleep. And I'm like, what? That makes no sense at all. Uh, well, she had a point. that At some point, sometimes we just get so uh, overtired. I guess that's the right word. That we can't actually yield and we can't we're so fixated or frustrated that we can't sleep that we can't relax enough to actually sleep my oldest daughter still complains about this tongue-in-cheek that when she was a baby and wouldn't fall asleep during church when I knew she was overtired and all she had to do was close her eyes and relax and she'd be out that sometimes maybe this was bad of me I would walk outside I was I mean I was walking doing laps around the chapel anyway so I might as well get a little fresh air and I'd walk outside and on sunny days I would always make sure that her face was in the sun because then her eyes would close she'd always say that's why I have glasses dad I'm like no it wasn't no cornea damage from sunlight because you closed your eyes and that's what I was hoping for I knew that if you just close them long enough and relax, and that's why I was holding you and cradling you and singing gently, the sun, I just needed the help to keep your eyes closed. But if you could calm down, I knew you'd fall asleep. And most importantly, I knew that's what you wanted and knew that's what you needed. There's something about God's words here with its mix of both justice and mercy. There's something about the way Isaiah ends this chapter uh, and how we'll end this lesson for the week. That God, he just wants to calm your stormy sea. That's why he came as a suffering servant. That's why he's a man of sorrows who's so intimately acquainted with your grief. He knows every sin, every sorrow, every suffering. And he wants to wipe away every tear. He wants to abundantly pardon. He wants his mercy to be at the level of heaven and reach down to your level on earth. He wants to give you a place and a name in his holy house that's better than anything you could possibly imagine. There's no peace to the wicked. So don't be wicked, please. Turn to me and let me change you. Let me pacify you in the best possible way. The stubborn teenager, the rebellious youth that has the fists up ready to fight the parent who's just trying to love them into coming back home. Son, daughter, I don't have my dukes up. I'm not trying to fight you. I'm trying to say to you, storm and all, peace, be still.